Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following program is an MLWRadio.com production. From the territories to Titan Towers to TNA and all points in between, he's seen and done it all. And now, he's here to share the real story behind wrestling's biggest moments, controversies, and characters. The MLW Radio Network presents Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am absolutely. You know what? I don't think I could possibly be any better. Uh, just before we move on, are you wearing the Kooji sweater from the Madison Square Garden photo that has floated around of you and Pat Patterson and Kevin Nash? I am not. No, this, this is a crew neck sweater. It is a Kooji, but this is uh, mainly blue, green, green, blue, green, bluish, burgundy. Okay. What year did you buy that? This one in particular, uh-huh. uh, this one was probably, Before or after I don't the 97 know, Royal 90, Rumble. 98. So right after the 97 Royal Rumble. I like it. Possibly, possibly, yes. Well, that's our topic this week. And man, you're in luck. If you're hoping for the 1997 Royal Rumble like I was, uh, we're going to have this covered in more detail than ever before. But before we get into this week's show, let's go back and put a bow on last week's episode uh, we did uh, have an error in judgment, so to speak, and uh, we made a boo-boo. We mistakenly said that the last Nitro was at Club La Vila. That's typically where all of those uh, outdoor Panama City Beach, Florida, WCW Nitros were held. Well, this one was not, and we just overlooked it out of force of habit. It was actually at the Boardwalk Beach Resort. Uh, shout out to Court Bauer and the Rogue Horseman on Twitter for pointing that out to us. Uh, apparently, they canceled the contract, La Vila did, uh, just a couple of months prior to that. So they had to find the new venue and they wound up at the boardwalk beach resort. 
so slight oversight on our behalf. We wanted to go ahead and correct. I like that. to call it the shithole. Okay. Uh, let's talk about something that we can all agree on. The 1997 Royal Rumble was super fascinating. And we're going to get into all the details of why it was and what happened when the WWF decided to run a dome in January of 97. Uh, Bruce, let's kind of set the stage here. If you weren't really a wrestling fan uh, at the time, we kind of want to catch you up so you know a little bit about what's going on. Uh, Bruce, just stop me whenever you feel like yelling at me. Uh, business was down in 93. Stop. Okay. I just felt like interrupting you. You said interrupt you whenever I felt like interrupting you. That's true. Do you have anything to say, or are you just going to be an asshole the whole show again? I'm probably going to be an asshole the whole show. I, I, folks, normally Conrad doesn't always share his notes with me, and he sent me his notes on this prior to our show this afternoon when we were preparing. And I'm going to admit right off the top, I'm coming into this thing hot. Okay. I'm already hot. I'm already pissed. Cool. Um, now, to be clear, we don't talk about what we're going to talk about, but I had no. ten, I had a lot of notes today, and I wanted him to at least have it so he knew where the hell I was going when I start going off on AAA tangents here in a few minutes. Uh, but at least for now, business was down, 93, 94, 95, even 96, and those were the lean years for the WWF. They had the steroid trial, Hulk Hogan had left, Macho Man had jumped ship, uh, Warrior had left and then returned only to leave again. And the WWF was trying a youth movement that wasn't drawing a lot. They're running in high school gyms and uh, not the big arenas that you were used to. And this is for the new generation using guys like Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, and two former WCW mid-card guys they repackaged as Diesel and Razor Ramon. Uh, Then WCW comes out with Nitro in late 95, and they start to show some real competition for the WWF. So Vince starts poking fun at WCW for using former aging stars like Hogan and Savage. And then before you know it, in spring of 96, WCW signs away two of those new generation guys, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall. Of course, neither of them did much in WCW the first time, and they had to go to the WWF to become stars. But now they're superstars, and the lure of this guaranteed money from Ted Turner gets them to leave the WWF. So the NWO is born. WCW's business starts to take off, and they are routinely beating the WWF in the ratings. Of course, Nitro is live. And it is the hot show that becomes can't miss for wrestling fans. Raw still taped and just limping along in the ratings. Uh, in August, Vader has his SummerSlam main event against Shawn Michaels. And that goes so poorly that Shawn gets the program changed. This according to Jim Cornette, uh, who at least said that the plan was for a trilogy of matches between the two at SummerSlam, Survivor Series, and the Royal Rumble. And we've already covered all of that in great detail on the Vader episode. If you'd like to go hear about that in more detail specifically. In September of 96, Vince is desperate and has Jim Ross announced that he's re-signed Razor and Diesel. Of course, it's not actually Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. But- well, I, I did take a se- exception to the desperate because it wasn't necessarily a desperate thing. The entire idea, which we will cover at another time, for the Razor and Diesel to come back on WWF programming was simply one to prove our status in a lawsuit that we own those marks. We own the IP razor and diesel and WCW was trying to capitalize on those intellectual properties. And it was simply a way to prove in a court 
that we did indeed we could take anybody and put them in the razor outfit and or the diesel outfit and that we we own those IPs. And, and, and it wasn't a desperate attempt. It was simply something that we needed to do to give an example of the IPs that we had and, and over the years show an example. Yeah, I'm sure it didn't have anything to do with um, trying to pop a rating because you're getting your ass Sure. Kicked. Well, no, it did have a lot to do to, to pop okay. a rating, but we owned the trademark. Glad, we owned the name. I'm glad we agree. We owned the likeness. The next month, Bret Hart finally resigns uh, with the WWF, and they start building toward the Survivor Series. Of course, we all know the plan there is Bret Hart versus Steve Austin, who's now getting a push having just won the King of the Ring. And, of course, Shawn Michaels versus Psycho Sid, which has just changed from Vader. Uh, coming out of Survivor Series, they announced they're going to do the rematch for Sean Sid, and it's in Sean's hometown of San Antonio in the Alamo Dome. So here we are. We're finally there. There's your backstory. That's kind of the lay of the land, landscape and wrestling, if you will. Uh, but, Bruce, before we talk much further about this, we should include uh, some commentary about Jose Lothario because Jose uh, had been a big part of Sean's run as champion and then a big part of the Survivor Series title match where he loses the belt to Sid. And now we're in San Antonio. I want you to kind of briefly share the importance with our listeners of Jose Lothario, not just from a storyline perspective, but catch folks up about what Jose was in the area. I know that he was an old-time star, and he was a former main event guy, and a top Mexican star in the area in the 60s. And he's kind of now in the Mick role from the movie Rocky. Uh, to kind of make an analogy to a Hollywood movie, to this booking, uh, kind of fill in the blanks about Jose. Well, Jose Lothario was actually, he lived in San Antonio, and he was a huge star in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in the Texas area, specifically in Houston, San Antonio, Dallas. And in the 60s, Jose was a big star in the Florida Territory and He'd been all over the country. Also, uh, San Francisco as well. Jose had done really well there. But he was a he was a local name. He was a big name. He was Hispanic. And reality-based, Jose is the person that broke Sean into the wrestling business and trained Sean. So there was a relationship there in real life. Here was Sean's real-life trainer, and we had an opportunity to showcase Jose as Sean's trainer, so it was meshing, you know, past day with modern day. And we knew where we were going in San Antonio for the big show with Sean, and Sean eventually getting the championship back, and it was a way to just expose him to another audience. So the question I have here is, when you guys inserted Jose into Sean's corner and make him part of his package, do you have the San Antonio blow off in mind when you first pitch the idea or think of the idea that this is what we'll build to, or is it simply as a fan, if you believe what you read online, it's that maybe Sean isn't getting over as the super sympathetic baby face. So if we bring in this older gentleman and he is his manager and trainer and confidant, then some the heels can kind of get the heat on him and Sean make the save and even draw more sympathy as a baby face. No, because at first we didn't want anybody even getting near and or touching Jose. It, it was an idea to introduce and basically introduce Sean to another generation, if you will, and try to endear him to another demographic. And as we got closer in the idea of San Antonio and Sean getting the title back, 
kind of came into view, and that was prior to SummerSlam that year. That's when the idea came. What if we did something to Jose? It's their big comeback. Sean wins the title, and he drops the title, and it's because of Jose. They have their big reunion and their big kind of send-off in San Antonio. It was never designed to be forever with Sean and Jose. Uh, let's put this in perspective. Uh, the last time the WWF drew 20,000 fans, uh, was for WrestleMania 10 in 1994 paid fans. And we're nearly three years removed from that here. You're making a face. You disagree with that? I don't know if that's necessarily true or not, but, uh, this research comes to us courtesy, of course, of Dave Meltzer. Um, I'm well, fuck then it's just gotta be as accurate as shit. Cause that son of a bitch has never made a mistake in his life. Or the 1996 Royal Rumble as a frame of reference drew 9,600 in a sellout. So 96 Royal Rumble, 9,600 is a sellout. It does a gate of $130,000, which my country math tells me the average ticket price is about 13 bucks. Bruce, would you consider this a good house at the time in January of 96? 130 grand seems like a pretty decent number. It is a decent number. Anytime you have a sellout, that's a good thing. Uh, so just a month prior to the 97 Royal Rumble, we have, of course, the December 96 pay-per-view it was in your house number 12. It's time. And this is from West Palm Beach. It's Sid and Brett on top, and it draws 5,708 folks. Uh, Bruce, this was originally, uh, in my head, have been Vader versus Brett. Is that right? No, not necessarily. I think it was supposed to be Brett and Steve, but I, I really don't remember. Well, I just, and to me, it seems like all along the idea would have been for Brett to return at Survivor Series and then get a title shot but, the next month. That's not accurate? No. I mean, the, the whole idea, everything changed when we changed opponents with, from Vader and Sean going to San Antonio, and we made the change to Sid. So Sid was originally booked with someone else. Vader was originally booked. Every it shook everything up. So hypothetically, so let's go down. Everything the changed when we changed it to uh, Sean and Sid at Survivor Series. Who would Vader have defended the belt against? I don't know that he even would have defended the belt in December. So you'd have a pay per view, and the belt's not on the line. Your champion's not wrestling there. Yeah, I, I really don't remember. He would have wrestled Brett. You're just being argumentative. No, I'm not being argumentative. I'm telling you, everything changed, and I don't remember what it originally was. I know what it ended up being, but when you come off of the SummerSlam match and you're ch now you're changing everything, it's a domino effect. Everything changes on down the line because now you've got a new opponent for Sean. So whoever Sid was programmed with, now you got to have someone up different for them. Now you got to have somebody for Vader, and everybody has to be rematched up. And you got to start new issues and new angles, and it's a and it's a rush, and it can be a clusterfuck that people don't understand. Well, well, that was what it was supposed to be. A guy falls down and and fucks uh, up listen, his ankle. Listen, shit get, changes. Let's get going on this, then, jerk. Here's the deal: if you've got a guy you're trying to get over as the champ, so he can drop it the next month, you got to make him look strong for the dome. It would have fucking been Vader, and Vader would have beat Brett, and he would have looked super strong, so Sean could beat him the next month. Or you don't have him work at all, and you build to the one match that you had at the Dome. So instead, let's just do a schmoz finish. Like, for for example, Brett. and for example, had it been Vader, you would have had that long build so that all people would have wanted to see was Sean and Vader. The 
to have to slide Sid in there, all of a sudden, you know, you've got a new matchup. So you got so you do have to make Sid look strong versus where we would have had Vader in a different place and it was a whole different story. Uh it's worth mentioning Vader's not on the show. Okay. That was right. Uh now a month later, after drawing five thousand seven hundred and eight people for their December pay per view, they're gonna try to sell seventy one thousand seats in a dome. Bruce, what in the world is the thinking and booking this building at a time when the business doesn't demand it? Well, I think people said the exact same thing in 1986 when Vince said, we're going to go to the Pontiac Silverdome and we're going to put 93,000 people in there for WrestleMania. And I wasn't there, but I heard firsthand stories from people who were there. They all thought Vince was crazy. They said, how in the hell are we going to put 93,000 people, not in Detroit, but in Pontiac, right, a which, suburb of yeah, Detroit? Yeah. And everybody thought he was crazy. And his philosophy was, I'm going to book it, we're going to do it, and we're going to fill it. Just do it. And when we reached this point, Vince's philosophy was simply, we had never done a dome before for anything other than WrestleMania. And it was available to us. Let's go for it. You know what? If you don't go for it, you're never going to know. And you can't do it if you don't go for it. Was some of this trying to puff your chest out and prove a point that you could run the big arenas and maybe something to kind of make and anoint Shawn Michaels as the top guy? And he really is the next superstar. He's our next Hulk Hogan, so to speak. Sure. Without a doubt. Jim Cornette said in his kayfabe commentaries, 1997 WWE timeline DVD, which everyone should go get if they haven't already. It's phenomenal that the actual number of paid was 47,514 with 12,511 comps for a total of 60,525 folks with a gate of $480,013. Cornette says the rent for the Alamo Dome was $125,000 flat, and the ticket prices were $17,18, I'm sorry, $175, $18, $14, and $10. So your top price is $175, your cheapest is $10. By comparison, this year, the 20-year anniversary, the 2017 Royal Rumble at the Alamo Dome, Ticket prices start at $20 and go all the way up to $400. Um, who would have developed a pricing strategy for the WWF at this time, Bruce? It's a combination of people. It's a combination of people in live events, marketing, and us. You know, We, we were all involved in it. And Vince is going to be the ultimate decision maker on that. The idea behind the Alamo Dome was simply to fill it was simply to have a a visual a house yeah we want we wanted the visual we wanted a large house not necessarily a large gate because we knew that economically in that market at that time it, it wasn't the best of times and the business wasn't the best it had been so we wanted to put a lot of people in there to give the illusion that, okay, hey, man, we're coming back. Shit, we put 60,000 people in the Alamo Dome. 
And the idea was to just get as many people in there as we could to have that those beautiful shots and to see Sean celebrating in his hometown in a full Alamo Dome. Uh, who was in charge of finding buildings? Like, Ed Cohn. Um, so he, he would have still picked this building here. I think Vince picked it. Okay. So talk us through why that happens. I just did. I mean, it was, it was an idea to have Sean have a homecoming. It was no, but I mean like, what, like Sean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that the rent was that much. I think we had a pretty damn good deal on the rent actually to make us even go in there. They wanted us. And it was also during a time when we were starting to realize that, you know what? The NFL doesn't rent buildings. Uh, other, other places, they don't rent buildings for the big events. And for WrestleMania, it started to, to become, instead of us renting a building and putting on an event, why the hell aren't they bidding on our business to bring WrestleMania to their town? And that was somewhat of a mindset, but to do that, you got to put asses in seats. So um, I don't think it was $125,000. I could be wrong. I don't really remember. I remember it was a decent deal for us to even go in there and do it. But it was simply, this was a stunt. This was a stunt to get a lot of people in an arena to anoint Shawn Michaels and for him to stand there proud as the WWF champion with, you know, 60,000 of his hometown fans cheering him on. Uh, so since you kind of argue, what do you think the rent was? If it wasn't one twenty, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not, and I'm not arguing. I, I just think it was, I think it was less than that because I think there was a deal involved. It's, it's, which we'll get into later on, on some of the, the marketing things, which are just completely wrong, but. Okay, well, let's run through this. Uh, San Antonio at the time, just as a frame of reference, is going to have a population of about a million folks. And that same year, you know, they're going to have WrestleMania just a couple of months later, and they're going to run a much smaller arena. And it's obviously a bigger, probably, wrestling town in Chicago. And there's nearly 3 million folks there. So this is a tall order to fill this many tickets here. It was. You're right. Um, th this arena, it's worth mentioning, the Alamo Dome was set up for basketball games to only seat 24,000. And they start pounding this 71,000 number quite a bit on television. Um, I want to circle back to the ticket prices for a minute uh, because you did say a minute ago that you weren't necessarily looking for a big gate. You were looking for a full house. And I get that. Because it is a television product. And, hey, just go ahead and set the record straight here. True or false, the bigger money in 1997 was not in the gate. It's in the pay-per-view number. Correct. So if it looks badass on pay-per-view, that's what matters most. That's your that's where your big money is. Uh, but, also, but also, frankly, we were looking for a feel-good. We were, we were looking for a boost. We wanted to be able to, you know... We were running perception. in small perception. Yeah, we were we were running shit buildings. You know, we're doing fucking six thousand dollars for a pay per view, and it, and it sucked. It hurt. Not six thousand so, dollars. You mean six thousand tickets? Six thousand seats, and and that hurt. So we wanted perception wise to be able to say, hey, no fuck, man, we we can still draw. We can still pack a big building, and that was the philosophy behind it. 
Now, you would love to make money along the way. Sure. But Vince is always one for he's going to gamble and he's going to go for the perception route and give the guys a, a feel good as well. And hopefully that money was going to come, the majority and bulk of that money is going to come from the pay-per-view. So let's talk about uh, the ticket prices again. You kind of mentioned that live events and folks like that would have been involved in it and you guys would have been involved in it. Do they make suggestions to Vince and do they have like data? I'm just curious when you get a report like this, like here's the census data, here's what the economics are, here's the median household income. Is there any sort of scientific process put into this or is, well, hey, $5 sounds good. Let's do that. No, we, we compare ourselves. You know, we would constantly compare ourselves to Ringling Brothers. We compare ourselves to the Globetrotters. We looked at what the local market, if they had a basketball team, what their prices were. And we tried to be, for the most part, especially in a market like San Antonio, that we were going to come into this huge event. We wanted to be family friendly as well. And we wanted to be affordable. And when you hear people talk about trying to go take a family of four to a live event, it's almost cost prohibitive. Yeah. So we wanted to make it affordable for families and, and for kids and want to get as many people in there as we could make it affordable. This mother's day and father's day, look no further for the perfect gift than paintyourlife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple, too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom, we're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back and they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson with paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. Now to get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. That's wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four text wrestle to eight, seven, two, zero, four. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. 
Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. So even though they draw a big house here with uh, 60,000 butts and seats, uh, they're still well shy of the 71,000 folks that they had promoted on television. And some of the top sections are tarped off for TV and you can briefly see them on the show, but I feel like you guys did a really good job shooting around it. And Cornette famously said, uh, this was a stadium that needed a show and not a show that needed a stadium. And I just think that's a brilliant way to put it. Um, was that the common feeling amongst any of the office, uh, that, uh, this is a big task to try to fill this up and it was all hands on deck to worry about marketing and strategies and angles and everybody's got to be at their best and sharpen their pencils. Sure. I mean, that, that's a cute way of saying it and it's accurate, but it's yeah, without a doubt, man, Vince wanted that son of a bitch sold. We were going to do whatever we had to do to sell it. Uh, Fink would announce on the show that the attendance was actually lower than the real number. Uh, surprise, surprise there. We've talked about attendance enough. I don't want to get off on that again, but he announces, uh, 60,477, uh, compared to 60,525. And that's the number that both Cornette and Meltzer have. They have the exact same figures for the attendance and gate. And you can draw your own conclusions there. Uh, I wonder who got it from who roll tide. Uh, Meltzer would report after the show that these figures uh, all topped even the most optimistic expectations within the company. So I want you to kind of respond to that, Bruce, and talk me through, you know, what the inner circle thought was realistic and what the expectation was, who was for it, who was against it, what did the talent think, anything you remember. We were looking for, I think everyone would have been happy if we had done 50,000 people. And of course we wanted, you know, we wanted to fill the damn thing. We would love to put 70,000 plus in there, but realistically, I think we would have been happy if we did 50,000 and ask, that, and that would look good. Let me ask this, uh, perception is reality and it is a lot about expectation in hindsight. Would it have made more sense to just pound 50,000 people on TV and say 50,000, 50,000, 50,000, 50,000, and then announce 60,000 as opposed to say 71, 71, 71, 71, and then announce 60. No. Why would you do that? You well, want to do 71,000 it holds 71,000. So you want to, you want to plug 71,000 had, had nobody we done knows. It the other, had we done, had we done, okay. Uh, you know, the 50,000, 50,000, then you're, the Melchers of the world would, well, they're, they're not confident in their show at all. They only are going to put 50,000 in there. You're, you're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. We wanted to sell it out. We wanted to promote selling the damn thing out. Yeah. We wanted to promote, come be a part of history, come be a part of a record breaking crowd. But here's what I'm saying. If you tart part of the shit off and you say, you say you're setting it up for 50,000, then it can't, you can claim a sellout. Why would you not want, if you really want to sell it out and you have the ability to tarp something off for the staging or why would, why would you go in with the, the fetus attitude that we're only going to do 50,000? Cause you didn't do 71. We did 60. Okay. This is fun. 
Uh, once the show, uh, actually comes off and you guys are kind of, uh, happy that you exceeded that expectation and there's a lot of damn butts in the seats. Can you tell us who was surprised and who had the, I don't know, I told you so swagger about this. I don't know. There was, well, okay. I take that back. Um, Vince had, I, say, it. I don't, had I don't know. There's anybody that had a swagger. Uh, some of us might have because coming from Texas and trying to, to explain to people in New York what the hell a walk up is. Um, I would look, man, I, I, I'll say it. I was extremely confident that we would have a good walk up. I was confident that they would come at the last minute and I felt I was never worried. I was never concerned that we would not have a decent walk up the last couple days of the event. All right, Bruce. Well, let's talk about the walk-up thing. I wanted to cover that. Um, Meltzer offered some really fun perspective uh, about walk-up. And he says that historically, Lucha Libre shows didn't have a big walk-up. And in the last few days, you guys sold more than 20,000 tickets. And he attributes a lot of that uh, to something we'll cover in a minute. Uh but explain what a walk-up buy is and how promoters feel about it. Because, you know, it's interesting to me that in Mexico, kind of everything's a walk-up. But here in America, if there's not a big advanced sale, people start to get nervous. Am I right? Yes, they do. But I would dispute. I think that uh, Meltzer is completely wrong if he said that Lucha Libre is not a walk-up. Because I remember when we ran Houston, Texas and we ran Houston, Texas with television maybe every I, single maybe week. I said that wrong. I, I, I but, don't think I did, but he said, but that I'm going to walk, walk up. Yeah. Lucha Libre. Yeah. He said is a walk up. It, it is a walk up. Yeah. And we used to run Houston on a Friday night with the traditional stars that were on TV every week. And that had a lot of promotion and guys used to come in. Jose Lothario used to promote Sundays in the same building and he would only promote, in Hispanic, in the Hispanic community, in the bars, and in a local Hispanic community, and do an all lucha show and outdraw us on Friday night. So historically, especially in South Texas, the walk up—if you had a Hispanic on top, in particular—it was always there. They, they came at the last minute. They supported their heroes. Very loyal audience, and you could count on them. And I didn't have, and San Antonio has a huge Hispanic population. And historically, San Antonio, for Joe Blanchard, for Fritz von Erich, for everybody that ran there on a regular basis, historically was a big walk-up town. Now, Northeast, man, it's all about that advance. And I could, you know, uh, going back, which one day, uh, we may talk about Houston wrestling, but, but I could go back in Houston wrestling and I could tell you almost within 50 people. That's scary. I could tell you a house based on the advance on Friday for the, the house that night, what the walk up would be and what the house would be. I could tell you within about 50 people, give or take, and you just become used to it. You, you become, you're able to gauge the interest in the audience and in South Texas, big walk-up town. Uh, San Antonio, historically a big walk-up town. And we played to that by going to sponsors and 
doing the $5 tickets, $5 off your tickets. All right, let's talk about that since you brought it up. Dave attributes a lot of these last-minute sales to what he called millions of discount coupons that were printed. Um, and a lot of these tickets that were sold, he says, were at the 5 and $7 mark. So apparently locals could pick up these coupons for discounts on their ticket at Taco Bell. And they were selling uh, these tickets are going almost as fast as they're printed uh, with this coupon concept. Um, I just have to ask Taco Bell in San Antonio. Is this a rib? No, Taco Bell's huge in San Antonio. They have a ton of Taco Bells in San Antonio and Taco Bell came on as a sponsor for us. Who was in charge of, uh, putting together deals like that? God, at that time. Who to do, to do, to do, to do, to do, to do. While you think about uh, that, let me run through this. Meltzer also notes that the local TV, radio, and newspapers were flooded with advertising for the event. Um, and all over Southeast Texas, you could see coupons uh, for the show on cans of Dr. Pepper and at every single Taco Bell. Uh, and they even changed uh, all of the syndicated challenge shows in the market to have customized commentary uh, pushing not only the show, but where you could get these discounted coupons. So this seems like you're saying like a sponsor, like go buy Dr. Pepper, go buy Taco Bell. So it's kind of uh, mutually beneficial. But this type of push means that Vince has placed a lot of importance on the show. And I'm just curious how deals like a Taco Bell or a Dr. Pepper would have come about back then. Uh, and while you're thinking about that, do you remember this coupon concept for any other big shows like this? Because I'm not super aware of any other time that you guys did it in this big of a way. Sure, they did it in Pontiac Silverdome, too. They, they did the coupons, and, and we've done it in a lot of places where we've wanted to draw a large crowd, and we just wanted a lot of people there. So we, we've done it before. It wasn't something new. And the idea behind it was we had Taco Bell willing to pay for it. So you offset we had Taco Bell, some of the ticket prices that you lose. You're, well, you're offsetting Also, they're paying for all the marketing. Right. So they're paying, you know, all the, the marketing and advertising, the newspaper, the television. Same thing with Dr. Pepper. They they were doing the marketing for us. They were advertising. So every time you walked into a convenience store, there was a setup. Alamo Dome, Royal Rumble, and the date, and a big picture of Sean. And... And WWF didn't that pay for that. That was stuff we couldn't buy. Taco Bell paid for that, or Dr. Yeah, Pepper Yeah, Taco paid Bell for. and Dr. Pepper paid for all that. Wow. And and then we got you know we got money from it as well to be able to use our likenesses. So we were getting advertising sponsorship money, plus they were doing the marketing for us, and they were distributing these uh, coupons, what have you, and they were doing a lot of the market, the product placement with our guys all over town. So, yeah, we did it. Also, to the uh, individual markets, we customized all of our markets, especially when we were coming in with a pay-per-view with customized commentary. That I mean, wasn't I, unique to San Antonio. That I, was unique to if we had big events there. I'm saying he, this was custom because it pushed the sponsors on the show. Anytime, but we did that in every market where we ran live events and where we had big events coming in. We all, we did that in every market. Uh, give me an idea of uh, how the local radio and TV budgets are determined to promote shows. I know you just said you got a lot of stuff here gratis, but 
like in 2016, you may not know how they do it, but back in the day, what was like the rule of thumb? Was there a hard and fast rule of thumb for what a local promoters would have a budget for, for radio and TV? There was, and I don't, I don't know the numbers and that's not, I'm not going to tell you what the numbers is. That's I, I don't know. There was a budget. There were budgets that they had to go in and get their ad spend, whether it be radio, television, they uh, bought time within our program in and around our programming, but in our, within our programming, we had our own localized spots that we ran in the event centers and different things that we made specific for each market. But we didn't do anything outside of radio and newspaper back, especially in this time. We, we might run a few basic cable spots and with local cable providers and things of that nature. But the local promoters, this was a national promotion, so the office, they had a budget. I don't know what it was. Would it surprise you to hear that in Huntsville three years ago, their radio budget for a house show was $1,500? Yeah. That's low or high? Low. That's what I heard. That's, uh, that sounds that sounds low, but uh, Meltzer offered some fun uh, perspective here, saying the only larger paid attendance for a show in the United States was WrestleMania three. So that really puts it in perspective, you know, when you're talking about the success of this show, that this is only behind WrestleMania three as far as attendance in the United States. Uh, of course, he says that show. Uh, drew approximately 78,000 fans, uh, but only 75,000 paid. And he also says that the WWF had topped the 40,000 paid mark on at least three other occasions outside the United States, two in Canada. One was uh, Hogan and Orndorff. The other was WrestleMania six. And then one in England, of course, for SummerSlam 92. He says WrestleMania at the uh, Hoosier Dome drew 62,167 fans, which is slightly more than the uh, Alamo no, Dome. No, it was 168. But the paid attendance was less at the show because it was substantially papered. Um, I can tell you're fired up about that. Uh, the Rumble Gate still broke the all-time Texas state record, which was set back in May of 84 for the Flair Carry Von Erich title change at Texas Stadium. Uh, that one drew 32,123 fans, which was the previous state record, and a house or a gate of uh, 402,000. Bruce, did you watch this 84 Texas Stadium show? Do you remember that one? I remember it. I, you know, I, I saw the, the world-class stuff at the time here and there. They didn't, we didn't get it in Houston, so I would see tapes here and there. Doesn't seeing it so empty hurt the overall experience? I mean, 32,000 is a big house, but in that stadium, it looks like nothing. Yeah, it does. And that's simply from the way they shot it and how, how it was presented on television. If they had put everybody on one side and they shot it for TV, but they didn't. And the promoters were more interested in what was the house? Yeah. How much did we make? They weren't, they didn't, they didn't care what the hell it looked like. There were actually 32,000 people there. Then they were happy. And they got the gate from that. So that's all they really cared about at that time. Uh, Meltzer says, considering how much money was spent in advertising on those two respective shows, this was a long way from being the most profitable house show in Texas. Um, by any account, the paid and total crowd were huge successes for the WWF, which by all accounts did perhaps its best job ever when it comes to local promotion of a show. So, you know, you know, when Meltzer 
well, you know, when Meltzer's putting something over like this, saying it's the best job ever for local promotion, you guys did a hell of a job for this. I thought we did. I mean, we busted our ass. It, it was, we had people on the ground, and we took the same team that was responsible for promote, promoting WrestleManias each year, and they were on the ground to promote the Royal Rumble as if it were a WrestleMania. Do you think this is the best promotion for a non-WrestleMania show ever up to that point? Do you agree with that? Up to that point, yes. Um, just for frame of reference, when we talked about ticket prices earlier, saying that uh, tickets were 175 18 14 and 10 uh, Re- WrestleMania 3 tickets, uh, the bottom price was $9. So 10 years later, different market, different show, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's uh, only a buck more. For the cheapest ticket. Um, let's get to some AAA talk. This is a well, big... Uh, well, hang on. Well, you're still on ticket prices. I will I will say this, too. And this came up, and Cornette could probably even elaborate on this as well. There was a lot of discussion about ticket prices because it was, it was a time that uh, Ringling Brothers slashed their prices this same year. And they part of their promotion was... We're family entertainment. We want the entire family to enjoy it. The concerts, uh, rock concerts in North America, they were dying. And the reason given for attendance down in rock concerts, I mean, attendance was down across the board for live events. But the rock concerts in particular were charging at the time like 50 bucks for a ticket. And they were pricing themselves out of markets. They they did well monetarily, but they were playing to half houses. And all of a sudden, they started coming back going, well, shit, are we pricing ourselves? And that was something that we looked at because we, A, we weren't drawing. <laughs> we were hurting. So first place you're going to look at is, are we charging too much? And this was a was an attempt. The people, the first thing that goes are your highest price tickets. Right. The first things that sell out no matter what. They're going to go. But that middle tier is always the most difficult to sell. And we just wanted to make it affordable for everybody. We wanted the damn thing. We wanted a lot of people. Well, and maybe one of the reasons you wanted a lot of people um, is, is one of the reasons that you thought about AAA. So we're going to dig into that. Uh Pena is trying to work out a relationship with the WWF and is reported as such in the November issues of the observer. And he says that he even met with Vince on November 13th in Connecticut. Do you remember that meeting? I sure do. Tell us about the first time that, uh, Pena comes to Connecticut. Does he meet at the tower or do you guys meet him at the nearby hotel or what happens there? We met him at Vince's house. Okay. It was Antonio Pena. Frank, can't remember the guy's last name and the name that was in your notes. I don't think that was his last name, but it may be. I don't remember his last name. And Arturo, somebody or else, who was their play-by-play guy. And it was myself, Vince McMahon, and Neville Meyer, who was the CEO of the WWF at the time. Frank Pats, that's what you're thinking of that you don't think is his name. I don't know, maybe. I don't know. He was an interpreter and ran odd jobs, I guess, for Pena. So he's there. I mean, you're going to tell us what happens at the house? 
Jive chicken. Well, no, jive we we, we met. I'd reach I'd reached out to them, and there was there was interest in expanding the the market. We we were interested in bringing in more Hispanic talent. We wanted some luchadors, and we wanted to go into the Mexican market, and we wanted to bring the Mexican promotion and those talents in to our shows. And AAA was the most successful promotion at the time, so that's who we reached out to. And they came in to sit down and meet with us. And the idea, we really didn't know what we wanted out of the deal. We didn't know what they had. Right. And Mexico is a fucked up place. <laughs> okay? I can already hear the, the feedback, the <laughs> blowback on this. Mexico's a fucked up place. <laughs> That's a t-shirt. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, let me tell you. And as you learn their business, you sit back and you scratch your head and go, how in the fuck are they this successful? Because nothing makes sense in the way that we conduct business here, but it works for them. So, hey, man, more power to them. But we didn't know what we had. We didn't know what the hell they had. And their contracts, for what they view as a contract and what they have under contract and what an American attorney or probably any other attorney in any other country in the free world and probably on Mars as well, might go, what the fuck? But the idea was kind of a let's meet, let's talk, let's see if we can figure out some way to do business together. So we came in and um, we sat down, and all of a sudden, Neville, who was the CEO of the company, takes over the meeting, and he was a uh, an older gentleman from South Africa, very, very bright guy, very bright guy. But he sits on the edge of his seat and he leans into Pena and he turns to Frank and he, he tells Frank, he says, I would like for you to tell Mr. Pena that we would like to buy his promotion, the WWF, and he's making these grandiose hand gestures, would like to buy your promotion. And I'm sitting there going like, what the fuck? This turned quick. You know, we're, we're feeling everybody out and just trying to see what they have, what they don't have, and, and now Neville's, Neville's buying the goddamn promotion. So it, it went from how can we work together to we want to buy you pretty quick. And there was some interest there and we decided, you know, we asked them to bring back uh, documentation on, on their company, what they had, what their assets were, what their liabilities were, their debt was all that good shit that you do when you want to look at purchasing a, a company. And that's how we left that meeting. But we agreed in principle to work together. We agreed in principle that we would do some joint shows, whether it was AAA talent coming on WWF shows or us sending AAA WWF stars to be on AAA shows. Is that out there that you guys talked about buying them? 
I don't think so. I don't think so either. Was was any money discussed at that meeting originally? No, because we, we wanted them. We didn't know what the, we didn't yeah. know what they had, and we asked them to give us paperwork and to show us what they had. Well, it's worth mentioning that uh, on AAA TV in early November, it's announced that Laparca would be in the Royal Rumble, but instead he signs with Conan's new promotion later in the month. But Pena owns the gimmick. It's kind of confusing. Uh, but this is what's going on right now because there's a rivalry brewing between Pena and Conan. Do you know if there was any specific conversations in your talk with AAA about wanting or asking for Laparca at all? No, absolutely not. Now, from my vantage point, I there were different people that I was interested in and that we were going to look at. I don't even know if Laparca was one of them. He may have been. I, I don't remember. Um, but Vince had no clue. Sure. Vince had no clue who who was who or what was what. And the the guy that if I could have cherry picked, if if you were to say to me, okay, Bruce, you're gonna have one guy from AAA. All I wanted was uh, the Garza kid. I, I knew you were gonna say it. I knew you were going to say him. It was, I wanted that, I wanted that, the young Garza kid. And I'd have been happy. If, if the only thing that came out of that <laughs> was that we got Garza, I'd have been happy. What was it about him that he didn't wear a mask? That he didn't wear a mask, good looking guy. And he, he didn't, he could work an American style. He could, he could go both ways. He, he could work the Lucha style. But he was also a pretty damn good, solid hand in the American style as well. And he's a good-looking kid. And just, he had it. He had it. He had charisma, man. He walked out. The girls went crazy. The guys loved him. And he was different. He stood out. He was uh, 27 at the time. Unfortunately, we lost him uh, far too soon at the... uh young age of 43 he died in may of 2013 to lung cancer uh, but hector garza uh, i knew would be your pick um it's report- that obvious well no i just know you think um Meltzer reports in late november that peroth jr uh Pena's top heel and two others that conan was trying to recruit are staying and uh, they're staying because he's starting to use working with the WWF, he being Pena, as potential bait. Uh, so that at least was out there, that they were going to have some sort of working relationship. And he's using it to make some of these folks, uh, or appease them, just keep them around. He even makes a play to get a Vampiro. Uh, do you recall there ever being a conversation with you guys about Vampiro? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. With triple a well he's not with triple a at the moment i just mean ever do you remember a time when uh, vampiro was ever discussed in the office no i can't have one for the working man it um it was it had been discussed actually uh, i'm i'm not gonna say it wasn't discussed but his gimmick was so similar to the undertaker that a lot of times if if that's all vince saw that's all he saw I see. And couldn't didn't want to come up with anything else for him. He just saw ah, he's a rip off of the Undertaker. I see. But um personally, you know, I I like Murray and I think he's a nice guy. I thought he was a hell of a hand and he was unique. He made his own way there. I I look at a guy like Vampiro who is able to go to uh 
another country. He's Canadian. Right. And and he gets over in Mexico. No different than Conan. I, I mean, to be able to go to another country and get over the way that they got over is extraordinary. And, and they were huge stars. Uh, Pena is back for a meeting with Vince at Survivor Series trying to cement this deal. Do you remember um, when this deal was kind of made official that this is what we're going to do with Survivor Series? Uh, not Survivor Series, but the Royal Rumble. Was it at that Survivor Series meeting? It was in that time frame. It, it was, I mean, it all happened pretty quickly. And we decided to, you know, let's just, let's, let's jump in. Um, instead of let's, let's date for a little bit. It was, well, let's just start fucking. And <laughs> let's go ahead. Let's get into this deal. And, and we did. So it, the, kickoff if you will was to be the royal rumble where we would spotlight a lot of triple a talent and utilize the luchadors in san antonio where there was a big hispanic community uh when did you know do you remember the timeline of how it comes down hey we're gonna do this kind of working together business but we ain't buying them when we never got anything from them okay okay so nothing came back no, nothing came of it. And when I say Mexico's a fucked up place, we would we, we kind of agree to work together in November, all right? Right. So we're going back and forth doing all this shit. Well, come the second week of December, man, they disappear off the face of the earth. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they just they just disappear until, like, the second week of January. They're on, like, holiday or festival or whatever the hell they call it down there. Okay. And, okay. and they, they don't answer phones. I see. So it wasn't that they were being dodgy with you guys. It was just their culture. Hey, we're, we were in business. <laughs> we're trying to run a business. We're trying to, to get shit done. We're trying to do travel. We're trying to find out who we've got, who we don't have. And I'm getting ring, ring, ring. You know, that funny foreign ring. Yeah. Well, you, you know. Hey, so let me ask, uh, we've talked about it recently here on the show during the Vader episode. What you chop up the walnuts. And, oh, I'm sorry. How would you compare working with AAA with all Japan? Well, at least AAA uh, knew who our talent was. It feels, but, it feels as if, uh, based on the way you described it, all Japan would have been kind of uh, uppity, for lack of a better word. They would have been more, you need us, we don't know who you are, we're better than, and AAA may have been a... Uh, Hey, yeah, we'd love to work with you guys. Who can we get? Yes, that's accurate. Um, they ran promos on AAA TV as if Shawn Michaels was going to do some shots for AAA. Do you know who else they wanted? What other type of talent trade was discussed as far as who would who would you guys have sent? Oh, God, they wanted Vader. They wanted Undertaker. They wanted all the top guys. Sure. Of they course, they had know, heard right? of them, unlike All Japan. Oh, yeah. No, they wanted them. Um, all of them. We gave them Razor and Diesel. You did. Yeah, we did. Um, AAA had 
not really ever drawn well in San Antonio. And they even canceled a house show there. And that's back when AAA was at their peak. But um, by the time these promo, go ahead. But, well, I, and, um, and after doing business with them, I can understand why. Because in, in the United States, they, they just do business differently. And having spent time in Mexico and, and gone over there, and I, I've dealt with AAA, I've dealt with the MLL, uh, dealt with Victor Quinones' group. Uh, God, I can't remember the guy. Really classy, good guy. Uh, Carlos. Oh, I don't remember. No, 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 no. He was a old timer, old timer, old time Mexican promoter that kind of ran his own stuff and used Moscris a lot. But having spent time over there and dealing with all the different folks, it's a different world. And sitting in AAA office and and watching guys almost in a in a room like a, a boiler room and taking calls and booking talent it's like uh, for example this is not accurate because they didn't have ray mysterio at the time but i'm going to use ray mysterio because it's a name i know but different guys oh yeah okay now you, you got ray on uh december 28th and then another guy goes oh you need ray on december 20th yeah, okay okay ray i'll be there december 28th six different guys will book a ray mysterio on this the same date to different promoters all over the country and they get guys that are the same build, and they give them a Rey Mysterio outfit and send them out if they oh, own wow. the name. Okay. So, for example, if they owned La Parca. And just put another guy in the deal. They've done that for years. They would put another guy in the deal and book them, but to use the name La Parca, you had to book it through them because they own the name. And you think that's fucked up? I do think that's fucked up. Hey, so let's talk about Fake Razor and Diesel. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> i love you we, we we weren't booking them out to other people we were using them you. we were the only ones using them and we portrayed them as it was all right uh let's rewind the podcast tape here 60 seconds you said we gave them razor and diesel <laughs> we did i love you that was for us though by the way um, hey if we do it it's right if you do it it's, it's wrong, wrong pal. i got it god damn it <laughs> When these promos run, uh, announcing that there is a triple a relationship, Bischoff gets all of the Mexican wrestlers in the WCW pay-per-view world war three to sign contracts immediately. Uh, and Meltzer reports that Pena has been pushing to the WWF that guys like Mysterio, Psychosis, Juventud, etc., who were all in WCW were still actually under contract to him, but Conan would dispute that saying that Pena had long since closed up shop there and then reopened under a new corporate name, PAP, sort of like Titan Sports is to the WWF. Was there any conversation that you remember with Pena about his rival promotion with Conan? No, none of that was discussed. But what, what I do remember him telling us that he had those guys under contract. And that's why we wanted to see all the paperwork, which we never, never got, got to see. Yeah. So was there at least some sort of uh interest at the time of hey man those guys are tearing it up on wcw if we could get them on our show that'd be pretty fucking badass well sure okay all right i just wanted you to say that out loud for me uh Meltzer reports and what's late- there to fucking deny 
Wait, you denied everything. A minute ago, Vader's That's not, not true. Fucking, all right. Oh, damn uh, it. Meltzer, I'm, I'm getting ready to. Go ahead, Meltzer Paul. reports in late November that the new plan is for Brett to beat Sid at the December pay-per-view to win the belt, and then the Rumble have a finish with Michaels, Austin, and Sid, all as possible winners. Uh, and they've even promoted that it would be Michaels, Austin, Sid, and Undertaker at the uh, February Chattanooga pay-per-view. Um, so let's fast forward now. The press conference. Never. That was never a plan. Which part? Brett winning the title in December. Okay. That was never, ever, 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 ever discussed. Uh, the WWF holds a press conference on November and November 20th in San Antonio. It gets huge coverage in Mexico, even more so. Huge. Huge. Even more so than here in the United States. Um, How much stock do you think Vince put in the Mexican market as being kind of make or break or critical to the success of this show? It wasn't make or break. It was in addition to. Okay. And it was simply something that we would have, um, for another demographic. We wanted to grab another demographic. It's no different than when we did the Univision show. We, we coveted that Hispanic demographic. So we, there were a lot of Hispanics in San Antonio still are, and we wanted to appeal to them. So we thought that Lucha Libre would appeal to them. How come you sometimes say San Antonio and other times say San Antonio? Are you from, are you from Texas or not? Yankee? I am from Texas, damn it. Well, that would be San Antonio, the way y'all speak. Am I right? Listen, hillbilly boy. All right. At the press conference, only three wrestlers speak. Brett, Sean, and Piroth Jr. Brett makes it a point to, to say some uh, derogatory things about Mexican wrestlers. And this is just a way to create some interest below the border. Uh, and this is held just four days, this press conference, after the Survivor Series, where Sid wins the world title. So, of course, he no-shows the appearance, claiming he overslept. Do you remember this? Boy, do I. Uh, I would love to hear how McMahon would react to something like this. And I want to know, before you answer that, was this par for course with doing business with Sid? I don't want to say it was par for the course doing business with Sid. It was. It was bad. It was real bad. Uh, especially when you consider Shawn Michaels, you know, the guy that gets the bad rap, stayed up all night drinking with Steve Austin, and he made the flight. Um, he was there, dressed to the nines, and, you know, he made the flight, but Sid couldn't find him, couldn't, couldn't rouse him, couldn't find, couldn't get him up, couldn't, didn't know where the hell he was. And we, we tried calling and, and looking around for him. And eventually we all had to get on a plane and fly to San Antonio. So, um, I wonder how McMahon would react to this. Uh, is he there at the press conference? Oh yeah. So he's kind of orchestrated a little bit of a layout for everybody. And now he's not there. Would an agent be the one to say, let's just try it out. See how it fits. Uh, Mr. McMahon. Uh, can't find old, old Sid. No, we were all, dude, we were all in Hartford the, the night before. 
And so we all were flying out together. So we knew, we knew at the airport, we started looking for Sid at the airport. There were no agents involved. It was me, Vince. Um, that was a cue uh, for you to do a McMahon impression. No, God damn it. I'm not, I'm not going to go there, pal. And, uh, as we're looking around and Sean was, had been out all night and was like, God damn it. We're Sid. Thank you. And we started searching for Sid. I started searching for Sid. Uh, where do you look? Do you look at the softball? I started fields calling first? hotels. When do you look at the softball fields? <sighs> didn't look there, did you? I didn't. So Damn it! I'm just you know, you. Conrad. If only you had been able to help me then. I'm not in the inner circle. I'll never be there. Uh, can you confirm the plan? At least as of this press conference. Uh, was there to be a Shawn Michaels Bret Hart rematch in the main event of WrestleMania 13? God, you know what? Um, I saw that in there, and and I don't I don't recall. I want to say yes. I want to say the plan always was to get to the rematch at WrestleMania 13 to switch the title to kind of do a almost a rubber match with those guys. Maybe at SummerSlam. Sure. Or whatever, but uh, obviously that all changed when Sean lost his smile. We'll get into that. Uh, in December, Super Luchas, which is the magazine that Pena puts out, lists <laughs> Super Luchas! lists every major name in the promotion as being in the Royal Rumble. And by mid-December, Meltzer reports the decision is made to kind of meld two shows together, almost make it feel like a AAA house show combined with the WWF Royal Rumble, with a lot of stuff not being on the actual pay-per-view. That's got to be one of the silliest fucking comments I've ever heard. Well, when we run through the card, it's hard to argue. Before we do that, it comes out that Mil Mascaris will likely be a part of the match. Uh, Mil Mascaris um, was a tag team partner of Jose Lothario 25 years before. And it was one of the top draws in the business back then. Uh, but by this point, hasn't really been a draw in San Antonio for decades. But Mascaris is a name that even casual wrestling fans might recognize do you know whose idea it was to involve him? Would that have been uh, somebody the WWF requests, or can you share anything with us about whose idea that was? Yeah, it was mine because Moscaris is arguably the second biggest name ever out of Mexico, second only to El Santo. And Moscaris was a huge name. He was a huge name in Mexico. He was a huge name in San Antonio. He was a huge name all over the world. He was the single biggest Mexican star ever to yeah. come out of Mexico. Uh, he was over and on, he worked on top every place that he went For all decades. over the world of uh, Japan, the United States, Canada, Europe, every place he went, he worked on top. He was a mega, mega star. And when you look at when we would have Moscars, for example, in Houston, you would see the generations of families that would come to see the legend that was Mil Mascaras and Santo before him. They, you, you would have the grandfather bringing the son, bringing his son. They would all come to the matches to talk about their experiences. And, and when they, you know, the, the grandfather would tell the grandson's stories about the first time is a small child that he saw Mil Mascaras in the ring and, and what have you. So Moscaris was a huge name. He was a huge get, and he was an independent. He did not work 
just he didn't work for AAA at all at the time. And he was one of those guys that could come in and, and work wherever he wanted to, whenever he wanted to. Um, does he get a five-figure payday for this? I don't know what he got. Can you talk to us about working with him? He didn't have Go ahead. No job. No job. No job. Right, no you're, job. You're wagging your pointer finger back and forth, and you're, it sounds like you're saying no job. No job. Sometimes, uh, and and I say this with the utmost respect and love for Mel Moskris, uh real name Aaron Rodriguez, and he would, Mel was a unique guy, a very old school guy, in that when he would wrestle, when he would come into the town, even in the dressing room, Mill kept his mask on. Mill wore his mask to the shower. He would take a shower. He would have a, a clean traveling mask that he would hang on the edge of the shower. He would take his shower, wash his hair, do all of his stuff, put the mask on in the shower, and then walk out and dry off and, and leave with the mask. And usually wouldn't take his mask off. A lot of times he would wear his mask into the hotels because he was afraid someone might follow him and see him without his mask and get a picture of him without his mask. So he was very old school in that way. And a, obviously it worked for him because he, he was a huge driver where there was a mystique about Moscris. But I also remember how he used to, he used to come into the office in Houston without the mask. And, very, very movie star looks. Yeah. Really, really handsome guy. And he would walk in dress, always dressed to the nines, custom suits. And again, look like a damn movie star and very, very polite, just a gentleman class gentleman all the way. But Mill did not do jobs. And if you knew him, you could have conversations with him. He he spoke broken English, but he spoke English. He understood English, and he could speak it. But when it came time to ask Mill to do the favors for someone and put somebody else over, no job, no job, no job. And <laughs> that was the only English you were going to get out of him. So he shows up to the show, or you guys know when you book him, he's not doing that. So that explains why he eliminates himself from the match, because no job. We figured that was the best way to, we wanted him to look good. He was a legend and we wanted him to look good. So hit a couple of flying burritos. We didn't even approach him. Yeah. I mean, we, he knew he wasn't going over. Sure. Okay. Um, Meltzer reports at press time about six weeks away from the event. Only 8,900 tickets have been sold. Um, and in January, uh, late January, I guess. It's reported that Terry Funk is confirmed for the Royal Rumble. And I always found this interesting, Terry in the WWF. There's lots of stories about him and his on-again, off-again relationship with the WWF. And just a few months after this, he would actually main event the very first ECW pay-per-view and become their first champion. Not the first champion, but the first one of the pay-per-view era. Kind of talk me through what it was like dealing with Terry here. Was he easy to do business with? He's Terry Funk. What more can you say? I mean, it, it, it's it was an idea to have somebody, a, a Texas legend in it. Terry Funk is, without a doubt, a Texas legend, a wrestling legend. He's a wrestling god, in my opinion. He's 
I'm goddamn Texas. He's Terry Funk. But, no, it was easy. I mean, Terry, would you like to come in and be a part of the Royal Rumble? We'd love to have you. Obviously, you're not winning the damn thing, but it's a one-off. Yeah. So, it's it's always a plus, in my opinion, to have Terry Funk on the show. The night before the Rumble, let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> you know where I'm going. There's a shotgun Saturday night, and uh, Terry Funk does a crazy interview where he rips on WCW, says Todd Pettengill's mother. That wasn't Todd Pettengill's mother. Was a whore. He did not say anything about Todd Pettengill's mother. And he called Vince, said about someone else's mother. And he called Vince McMahon a Yankee bastard. Well, and, that's true. And wound up in a brawl with Austin. Any heat on Terry for these antics? Well, let me tell you a little story about that night. The Shotgun Saturday Night took place at Denim and Diamonds in San Antonio. Sounds like a strip club. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. It was an old honky-tonk. It was a kind of a yuppie honky-tonk, if you will, that the the young folk went to. It wasn't like a real honky-tonk like Gillies or Eddie's Ballroom and Manville or anything like that. And we were doing Shotgun Saturday Night, and we were live, and we thought it'd be cool. We're in a bar in Texas. Well, who the hell else would you expect to be there but Terry Funk? Right. Come on. So we, we had Terry booked for that, and Terry being the proverbial pro that he is, Terry's the first one there, and he's sitting in a, uh, what the hell are they called, uh, like a janitor's closet off by himself. He's there hours earlier than he needed to be there because the damn show didn't start till 11 p.m. Central Time. And I have been given the task to discuss with Terry what he's doing that night and to make it very clear to Terry that we were live and that language was an issue because where we aired, a lot of the stations did not have the capability of a seven-second delay and if we missed it and they missed it you know it could could not be good so and late at night on a saturday night they oftentimes don't have people in the control rooms they just you know mash a button and get the download not the download but the feed from the satellite and take the shows in and figure hey everything's good and so i explained to terry hey we're live um just gotta let you know terry um need you please watch your language tonight and Terry's sitting back in his chair, leaning back on two legs of the chair, feet kind of kicked up. He just looks at me and says, Pritchard, did Junior send you in here to tell me that? And by Junior, he's referencing Vince. And I said, uh, yeah, Terry, he did. But just so you know, I mean, it's my ass <laughs> if if you go out there and cuss or, or do anything and God damn Pritchard, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll be fine. Don't it's, it's all good. Who, who am I working with? So you're working with Brett tonight and it's, uh, it'll be fine. So Terry gets in the ring, takes the microphone, goes on to call Vince, a Yankee bastard and turns to Brett Hart and looks at Brett 
and says, Bret Hart, your mother's a whore. And I'm in the audience, but I'm also within eyeshot of Vince McMahon. And he just is staring daggers at me. <laughs> like, God damn it, Bruce. But um, the other fun thing that happened that night is in that brawl, I there was a spot there where I went in to, I was going to let Terry know when we were off the air. And they had the, one of those big old wash tubs yeah. with ice and beer in it. And my good, close, dear, personal friend, the Funker, proceeded to take me and dump me into the tub full of ice and water and beer. Fully clothed. How was it? Cold. Very cold. Yeah, lots of fun. But that's the story behind Terry Funk, and it was it's always fun working with Terry. Uh, let's talk about something that uh, not only did Meltzer report, but Vince Russo covered earlier this year on his nuclear heat broadcast. Uh, he shared a story, he being Vince Russo, uh, about him appearing on the old WWF Saturday morning show Livewire. And he says this happened uh, in early January 97. He was asked to appear on camera as Vic Venom, who was at the time, of course, writing for the magazines, doing some kind of controversial, edgy, workshoot type stuff. Uh, so then it's his turn with a name like Vic Venom. Yeah. Okay. With a name like Vic Venom. So when it's his turn to give uh Royal rumble predictions, he says, quote, everybody had different predictions and Vince McMahon was in the studio at the time. They asked for my prediction and I'm in there as Vic Venom. And I said, are you freaking serious? It's obvious. Bret Hart is winning the Royal rumble. And I really put over Bret Hart. I didn't have a second or third choice. As soon as it ended, Vince was very red in the face and he goes, can I talk to you for a minute, pal? I went over there and it was just the two of us somewhere in the TV studio. And he starts firing up on me asking, how could I give away the finish to the Royal rumble? I looked him straight in the eye and told him I had no idea who was going to win the Royal rumble. Nobody told me it's obvious to any fan sitting at home that Brett was going to win the Royal rumble. I wasn't in the inner circle at that point. Pritchard wasn't telling me what was going on. But it was obvious to me Bret Hart was going over. I will say this. The finish of the Royal Rumble was changed. Does any of this ring a bell to you, Bruce? Yeah, I remember that very well. Carry me through. Uh, Were you in the studio when it happened, or you just hear about it? I was not. No, I was not. I, I heard it from Vince McMahon. The... Probably the bigger issue was the the tone and the way it was said. And at that time in the business and, and especially in WWF, it, it wasn't the way he said, well, it's obvious Brett's going to win, meaning, well, it's obvious this is all the work and it's obvious we're pushing Brett. And I think that Vince McMahon had more of a problem with the tone and the way it was delivered than he did if he had said, you know what, I think, Bret Hart's going to win. I think Bret's going to win because of this versus, well, it's obvious they're pushing Bret Hart type of a thing. And that was more Vince McMahon's issue. It, and, it, and I'm not going to discount the fact that Vince always hated when Gorilla Monsoon would talk. Gorilla would do the same type of stuff that he would pick the winner because he knew what the finish was. Right. Just to show everybody he was smarter than everybody else. 
But Russo really didn't know. And But he, he was looking at it as a fan and going, well, it's obvious that they're going with Brett, which we were. We were going to Brett and Sean. So that one, you know, wasn't wasn't too hard to predict where we were going, but rather than saying, "Oh, that's where they're going," you could phrase it a different way and say that, "Well, I think Bret Hart's going to win because of this, not because of what they want." So the finish has changed. It was supposed to be Bret. The original idea was for was to go with with Bret and Sean. A few days before the show. Um, well, maybe not a few days, I guess it's the 14th. So yeah, not too, not too far before, uh, he announces Meltzer does in his newsletter that 28,800 tickets had been sold for 310,000. He guesses with the paper that's out there, the total tickets that have been printed would be around the 35,000 mark. Uh, and he did say that the WWF was hopeful for that big walk-up we talked about because there had been a tractor pull there. That once had a 30,000 ticket walk up. Do you remember hearing about this tractor pull and a 30,000 walk up? I sure do. That's amazing to me. First of all, that 30,000 people want to watch a fucking tractor pull. And I'm from Alabama saying that. <laughs> but second, That's just how many people walked up, pal. Yeah. Not how many people were there. It's impressive. They, they probably had another 20,000 that had bought tickets and had 30,000 just walk up, show up that day. So what you're saying is... The tractor pull out drew the WWF. No, they only did 50. <laughs> uh, I've never pay, heard. Pay I, attention, I, pal. I'm just busting balls. I've never heard of this before, and I want to pick your brain about it. Meltzer writes, the paper. Well, a tractor pull is where you get a big tractor and, oh, what? The uh, pay-per-view. Uh-huh. You know. The pay-per-view is being blacked out throughout southern or southeastern Texas. How common was this to black out a pay-per-view? Is this only because you're trying to fill the thing for the dome? I mean, I've never even heard of that. Yeah, it, believe it or not, it was. And, and it was simply, it's no different than back in the olden days when NFL football used Absolutely. to be blacked out. Still because is. if they didn't sell enough live tickets, then they would black it out in the home area. You couldn't see it. And that was the philosophy behind it. We wanted to draw from surrounding areas. So the only way you can see this event live now keep in mind it was blacked out live they would be able to see it on a replay i say in a later date but live the only way to see it was to be to there. come to the event live yeah uh it's worth noting the monday before the rumble wcw sets a record for nitro with more than ten thousand fans for a gate of one hundred and four thousand at the superdome in new orleans that's the one where ddp would diamond cut scott hall and not join the nwo uh, so everybody's talking about how great it is that they draw ten thousand people in a sixty thousand seat dome but saying how terrible it is that we draw sixty thousand people in a seventy thousand seat dome it's not true what we're saying is okay th- the business is setting records right here this is your second biggest show behind only wrestlemania three as far as attendance and the Monday before WCW has a record nitro and the following week, they would break that record. Uh, just in the one week advance, they had already sold more than 11,000 seats for 153,000 in Chicago for the following nitro. Yeah. Business was on an upswing starting. This was kind of the upswing of the business. Absolutely. Uh, Meltzer noted, uh, that in the week leading to the rumble, that triple a was promoting the hell out of the Royal rumble. 
and said it was a mistake in his opinion that SMW and USWA had already made when it came to working with the WWF. The result was they would make themselves look minor league. Do you agree with that assessment? Explain to me how it would make them look minor league. Are you serious? You think SMW and USWA can compare to the WWE? No, I, what, I, what I'm saying is, is how does associating themselves and promoting the WWF and being a part of the WWF make them look minor league? Well, it may- if anything, that should help them with the credibility being associated with the WWF. But the very statement you just said implies that if it helps to be associated with, then from a leveling standpoint, the WWF is higher. Sure it is, but it gives them credibility and it helps them. So it's it doesn't right. devalue them you and make argue. them look less. You just argue and argue. You agree? No, uh, it's, I don't understand the analogy at all. The go home raw for the rumble did a 2.3 rating, which was its highest in a month. And nitro did a 3.4 that same night. That'd be a good rating today, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. Oh, shit. Uh, so here we go. Let's talk about the actual show. Now that we've been talking for almost an hour and a half, let's talk about the Royal Rumble <laughs> 1997. Yeah, this will only take 10 minutes, though. So. The Observer readers gave the overall show a 42% thumbs up and 39% thumbs down. So overwhelmingly positive reviews. Uh, Meltzer writes, from a match quality standpoint, this wasn't a good show. The Rumble match was a one-man show with nobody else even making a dent. Michaels, bothered by the flu, had his worst pay-per-view match in several years. Although in his hometown with a crowd that had come largely to see only one match, it came off well as a spectacle and to many hid the work rate. Sid may have not also been at 100% due to having an auto accident nine days earlier although he had worked three house show dates in the interim as he did almost nothing. So Bruce, let's talk about both items here. One is Sean's flu. This has kind of been talked about and documented a little bit, but when did you guys know he was sick and then how was he to deal with here? And finally, was there ever any concern about him not being able to work the show after you've put all this promotion into it? Well, I answer the last question first. There was no concern as to whether or not he'd be able to, worked the show. He had been sick for several days before the event and he was doing everything that was asked of him. And we, we actually pulled him back from himself. He still wanted to do more, but no, he was, he was actually easy to deal with. And I actually, I didn't remember the Sid accident until you brought it up and thinking back. Yeah. Sid was a little banged up. And it worked, and he wasn't 100% either. So you had the the walking dead and the wounded dead in the ring for your feature match on, you know, this huge event. So carry me through. I'm going to try again. Hopefully you're listening and paying attention this time. I listened. Okay, so I want to know what it's like when Vince finds out he's got all his eggs in this basket. This is the biggest non-WrestleMania ever. It's the biggest promotion he's ever put together for a show. It's huge. And now the two guys in his main event, right leading up to the pay-per-view, one's got the flu, one's in a car wreck. I want to know what Vince is thinking in the office when this news comes down for a big show like this. Uh, Mr. McMahon. I got- well, there was, there was no, there was no, you got to understand. 
there there was no danger of not having the show. Okay, let's move it along. Wasn't, it wasn't like Sid was hurt, and it wasn't like Sean had pneumonia and dying. God damn, pal. You're making this very difficult. Uh, Meltzer took McMahon to Wait task. Wait you get to your next point. I'll just hold it up for you to read. Go ahead. For calling the uh, crowd a capacity crowd, despite promoting 71,000 seats on TV and then announcing that it was only 60,000 and change. All right, you're, you've slid me a sheet of paper now that says, fuck Meltzer. You just wanted to hear me say it now? Yeah, fuck him. I, I mean, that's, again, it's just, it's just okay. Be, what about that's not fair, we promoted that we, uh, we We promoted that we had 71,000 seats. We wanted people to be a part of a 71,000-person uh, crowd. We only drew 60,000 people. And... Vince still called it a capacity okay. crowd. That's not fair it enough. It capacity crowd. After we tarped off everything, that's capacity. That's all we could put in there. I'm starting to understand why people call you con man now. I love you so much for well, that. Well, fuck you too. Okay. Uh, here we go. Here's a quote. I want to talk about this. We mentioned him earlier in the show, our good friend, good old JR. Uh, this story right here seems a little suspect at best. After several years, they finally got Jim Ross in the black cowboy hat as a full-time gimmick. Ross was fired a few years back by the WWF for, among other things, an interview in the Pro Wrestling Torch newsletter, and because he wouldn't agree to be portrayed as good old JR wearing a black cowboy hat. Uh, That's a quote from The Observer. And Bruce, I don't remember this being the show where JR started wearing a hat, but when I went back and rewatched it, I did... Here, Lawler makes several comments about it. Uh, tell us the backstory about Vince wanting Jr. to wear the hat and his alleged reluctance to do so. Well, Vince looked at Jr. and kind of, in his mind, saw Dandy Don Meredith. Do you know who Dandy Don Meredith is? Nope. Dandy Don Meredith was a, a old football announcer. He did Monday night football with Howard Cosell and Don had a real, real thick accent. He's from Texas and he had a real thick accent and he was a, a hell of a character and Don would wear a cowboy hat from time to time. But, but in Vince's mind, when he heard Jr. calling a match, he saw him in a cowboy hat. No different than they saw Dusty and Polka Dots. He felt that with that voice, the southern accent, that the only way people would accept him and, and feel it was genuine was if he was in a damn cowboy hat. Now, to a southerner, I just, it would dumbfound me. I understand it. I truly do understand it. I, I, see, I see what he sees. I see what he's talking about. But to the part of the country where I come from, where you come from, we think that the Yankees up north talk funny. There's nothing wrong with our accent the way we talk. So that was a bone of contention. And the more that Jim fought it, the more that Vince dug in and felt that was the only way that people will ever accept Jim Ross is if he wears a cowboy hat. And was adamant about it and kept on and kept on. And and there was an an episode one time with Jerry Jarrett uh, trying to explain to Jim Ross 
about why he needs to wear a cowboy hat and making these ridiculous analogies and, and Jim getting upset and um, ended up throwing a drink on Pat Patterson. And it was a heated argument. But Jim felt that by putting a hat on him that they were going to make fun of him. And Vince didn't see wearing a cowboy hat is something to poke fun at. He just wanted to complete the package and make Jim a character because he felt that with his his style of commentary and his accent, that he could make him more of a character and, and more appealing and more lovable. If he was good old JR and you put a cowboy hat on him, and now everybody wants to be his buddy and goddamn, you know? And... Jim just felt, and I'm putting words in Jim's mouth, but um, these are things that he has shared with me. Jim felt that it was making fun of him. Right. And he didn't want to be a cartoon. Jim took his job very seriously, prepares for his job. He worked hard at his job. He loves his job. And he felt by putting on a cowboy hat would make him a cartoon. And the more he thought it, the more that there was pushback from Vince to, by God, if you don't do a cowboy hat, I, I just don't see using it. I mean, it got to be almost almost to that silly of a stalemate. Now you can't get the cowboy hat off of Jim. Well, it's his gimmick now. Well, now it's his gimmick, but Vince wanted to make it his gimmick long before that. So in the end, do you think Vince was right? I do. And obviously JR's comfortable with it now, and you can hear JR's fine podcast uh, on podcast one. Uh, it's the Ross report. Go check it out and uh, check them out online at jrsbbq.com. Uh, Blackjack Lanza did a video building to the introduction of Barry Windham and Justin Bradshaw as the new Blackjack's tag team. And uh, despite speculation to the contrary, Blackjack Mulligan was not there. And the videos were shot on a ranch in San Antonio over the Rumble weekend. I don't know when we'll talk about the new Blackjacks again. We will. Whose idea was this and why didn't it work out? Well, Barry Windham and John Layfield were good friends. They rode together. They hung out together. And it was just simply two guys. They looked they looked the part. Barry Windham is Blackjack Mulligan's son. And he was Blackjack Mulligan Jr. many, many years ago when he first broke in. And we thought, well, hell, we could have the new Blackjacks, basically, and have Lanza endorse Layfield. Is We didn't call Layfield Blackjack's son. I think, uh, I, I don't remember what we said, but it was just Blackjack Lanza endorsing him. And then we did say that Barry was Mulligan's son. Right. But it was just an idea to repackage two guys that, that weren't really going anywhere at the time. Well, I dig it. It's a shame that it didn't get uh, over a little more. By the way, uh, you mentioned him a minute ago. When I threw it in my Google machine, I do remember Don Meredith. Uh, he's in the Football Hall of Fame. I remember his quote, turn out the lights, the party's over. That's uh, it. Yeah, so that that's something that uh, I'm very familiar with. I just didn't recognize his name more so than his likeness. Uh, I'm curious about this. <clears throat> uh, apparently, Lawler was the surprise that was teased on television. Uh, but he was actually being advertised locally in print. And I'm just curious, is this a case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing? And how common were mistakes like this back then? That's just a fuck up. You know, somebody probably saw his name on the on the sheet and the roster and thought, hey, he's a name. Let's throw him on there. 
Exactly. Yeah, it's a fuck up. That shit happened all the time. Um, would Vince ever get hot about that? Who would the heat come on for that? Or is it just no big deal, pal? It was an accident. No, he would get hot about it. <laughs> He'd definitely get hot about it. God damn it. Yeah, you're making me fucking fight for those impressions today. I'm, I'm yeah, done. I know. I'm done. I know I am. Now I'm doing it on purpose. That's cool. Don't sing that I'm stupid doing, now song. I'm doing it late. Uh, do what? Meltzer wrote. Don't do what? Quote, they had Spend a man working, working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. This is my life now. I can't wait to. I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do a rock version of that one time. Uh, Meltzer writes, they had an ad during the uh, show for the Sugar Ray Leonard Hector Camacho fight, which Vince McMahon and Titan Sports are promoting on pay-per-view in March. Expect a lot more hype for that fight as weeks go on. Bruce, I have to admit, I have almost no recollection of this, but I want to know how this comes about because you've told us uh, on the last episode that Vince could be a little impulsive from time to time, but he's got one of his biggest shows ever here, and he's in a dogfight that he's losing, and now he's deciding to promote a boxing pay-per-view the very same month as WrestleMania. I, I just, what am I missing here? Is this not in the book of bad ideas? Why is it a bad idea to make money? It's not a bad idea, but you're promoting to your wrestling. Sugar Ray Leonard was one of the biggest draws on pay-per-view. We were going to use that fight in the boxing crowd to promote WrestleMania. So we were making money off of it. We used it pay-per-view to pay-per-view and two different audiences and being able to hopefully take some of that boxing crowd that was buying a pay-per-view and saying, hey, check this out. But you're promoting to your wrestling fans who have bought a wrestling pay-per-view Hey, don't forget about this boxing pay-per-view the same month as WrestleMania. Don't you think that could potentially hurt your WrestleMania buys? No, it's pay-per-view to pay-per-view. And it's just, it's no different than a television show promoting another TV show. It was the same audience. It was a pay-per-view audience. It was a paying audience. And we were getting a cut of both. No, I get that. But the guys weren't. Who cares about the guys? I understand. No, it, it was business. It was it was simply business to get our uh, shit out to a bigger audience, a different audience. Let's do some good news from Meltzer because you think he just sheets on, shits on all things WWF. He writes, the local San Antonio Express News, which was one of the sponsors on the show, ran several stories leading up to the event and then ran next day coverage of the event with a large color photo on the front page. As far as I'm concerned, no matter what someone may think of pro wrestling, Anytime an entertainment event can come to a city the size of San Antonio and draw 60,000 people, it should be front page news. Uh, you're wearing a clown nose right now, and I need you to elaborate. Um, I mean, tell me, drawing a house this big at this, you know, in San Antonio, what does this mean for wrestling, you know, in the scheme of things, just for the overall business? Huge. Absolutely huge, and it was a big accomplishment, and we were very proud of it, and it was huge. There's there's nothing negative to take out of that. Well, let's get going. Let's talk about the matches. Uh, dark match number one, Venom and Pero Aguayo. I'm murdering these. I'm from Alabama. Sorry. Pero Aguayo Jr. Who did they beat, Bruce? Mosca de la Merced y Maniaco. In about 10 minutes, it's a good opener, according to Meltz. Uh, during the pay-per-view, uh, Jim Ross praised the 17-year-old Aguayo. Pero Aguayo Jr. 
uh, talking about his match earlier in the show. Uh, of course, he would go on to be a huge star. He passed away a couple of years ago in a match, which sucks. Um, you got anything about this match? Did you remember watching this one at all, or were you running around backstage not really paying attention to this? I probably wasn't paying attention to it. Uh, but I knew, I do know that uh, Pedro Jr. Was, was a hell of a talent. He's uh, like 17 or 18 here. He's a youngster. And, he was uh, a youngster, yes. Yeah. Uh, and what was reported to be the ease, uh, easily the best match on the card per Meltzer, uh, octagon and say that kid's name, Bruce. I gotta find it. Tinieblas. T wait. Tinieblas. 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 Junior. <laughs> e. Blue Demon Junior. E. I got that one. E Blue Demon Junior. <laughs> They beat heavy metal and heavy metal <laughs> e abismo negro e hysteria formerly, formerly super, super crazy uh in 14 minutes uh three stars on that match from Meltzer. uh any memories of that did anybody leave an impression like that you mentioned in the first match yeah heavy metal octagon and the and of course crazy i from the first time i ever met uh super crazy fell in love with him great guy and hard worker just a wonderful wonderful human being so then we go to the uh free for all uh go ahead and tell us who's in this match mascarita sagrada junior e la parquita beat mini vader e mini mankind in four minutes and 29 seconds minutos con manager mini Paul Bearer. <laughs> no, <laughs> mini Paul Bearer. I do this whole damn. I, I bet y'all didn't know I was by. Bilingual. Let that one just sit for a minute. Uh, mini Paul Bearer was not there. And, uh, he, Minnie Paul Bear had worked in the Mexican shows here. So I'm curious, where the hell was Minnie Paul Bear and why did we never get that? Uh, is that a rib? Like, how does Mexico get Minnie Paul Bear and we don't? I don't know. I loved Minnie Paul Bear. I thought Minnie Paul, I loved all the minis, man. They were great. Whose idea was a mini match and to, to use them as the WWF style mini names? Oh, Vince loved them. <laughs> Vince absolutely loved them. And, and I think it, I think, uh, Pena had thrown out the idea of, of being able to do minis to complement the WWF characters and God damn, I love it. And they did. And I thought they were great. They were, they were entertaining as hell. So let me go to the, uh, live show. And this is what Hunter Hearst Helmsley. All right, oh. calm down. Uh, this is when we actually start the pay-per-view. Now we're done with free for all. Uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley retains the intercontinental title, beating Goldust in 16 minutes and 50 seconds. And El Goldusto. <sighs> for our Spanish-speaking friends, you know what? We've got like about eight listeners in Mexico, so I want to I want to grow that. We're losing them all because you're fucking dragging here. Uh, Hunter was accompanied by Curtis Hughes, who was referred to as both Curtis Hughes and Mr. Hughes, and (laughs) was referred to as Helmsley's butler as opposed to bodyguard. So he wasn't advertised before. This is his first appearance. He would be replaced at the next pay-per-view 
by China. So this is short-lived. I'm curious, how does Mr. Hughes get a gig here? He had done some shots in ECW. Is that the common straw here, or what happens to get him in? (laughs) Well, it's funny. I rewatched this pay-per-view, I guess, two nights ago. And, and And, of course, you and I watched it at your house not long ago. And I said exactly the same thing that I said at your house when I saw Curtis come out. I didn't remember he was out. there. Yeah, I'm like, what the fuck is Curtis used it? Oh, okay. I, I think I said that when I watched it with Conrad. Yeah. Um. Yeah, he was there, all right. It didn't last. It was simply a way. Curtis was a hell of a hand, and we were looking for something for him to do at the time. And we had done the stuff with Helmsley and the female valets and just trying something different. Didn't work. Didn't last. Let me, let me ask a question here. And yes, sir. I'm not trying to be ridiculous when I ask this, look at the way he's dressed, his size that he can work. Isn't he a natural fit for the nation of domination? Curtis was black. Well, I'm not saying that. I mean, crush wasn't black and he was in it. I'm just saying he's got a black glove on. That's kind of the gimmick. He's wearing all black. He's a big dude. He can work. He's wearing like a militant Islamic, you know, black, he's wearing a black jacket, suit. white. Yeah. But I'm saying when you look back at the footage, you know, back in the, what the NOD was trying to kind of go for, they were dressed just like him. Yeah, I don't really know. It was just, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but that's a decent. I don't know. Okay, all right. Uh, sorry. Dave writes something here, and I'm setting you up, Bruce. I'm sorry. He writes, quote, Helmsley has potential, but at this point, he's being pushed only on potential in politics and because he's got a good head of hair. His work is only slightly better than average, and his interviews and persona are below average. And you just flipped me off. Probably wasn't supposed With to announce that. With the clown nose. But help me understand. Uh, what did you think of Hunter's work at the time? Oh, Hunter was a hell of a worker. I thought Hunter was a good worker when I saw him in Massachusetts as terrorizing. He was good then when he did the stuff as uh, Jean Paul, whatever the fuck his name was, not not Jean Paul Shellnut, but uh, in WCW. And when he came in, he was a hell of a hand. And I think he got better as the years went on. But of course, you know, Meltzer was there, so he knows everything and he's he's his years of experience in the ring allow him to be able to judge people's talent and because well, he's promoted so many events and drawn so much money with his expertise. Okay. Um so, but I thought to answer your question, I thought that uh, Hunter was a was a hell of a talent then and I, I believe he only got better. And that's not brown nosing, that's red nosing. I'm looking at you wearing a clown nose. Uh, they, they, arr, arr, arr. they mention here on the show and they actually go interview him on the show, Colin Ray. I'm from Alabama. I have no idea who the hell is Colin Ray. What is a Colin Ray? Do not disparage the good goddamn name of Colin Ray. I don't know what Colin it is. Ray was a country music superstar. I never Very heard of big. him. How's he a superstar? He's a megastar compared to what? Compared to everything, he was a he was a big star. Give me like and he five. Was a, and he was a good close, and he was a good close personal friend of Owen Hart's and, and a lot of the boys. But he was a hell of a guy, and he was he was a mega star. I I wasn't a big country music fan at the time, but those that were, he was he was a big deal. 
Uh, apparently, he did have four Billboard number one hits. Uh, Love me in this life, my kind of girl, I can still feel you. Uh, but they don't just stop there. They actually have uh, old Pettengill go interview a kid who saved up her babysitting money since August uh, when school started back so she could attend the Royal Rumble. I don't know how many kids she had to watch to come up with 10 bucks, but she managed to do it. What the fuck are y'all doing interviewing fans are you done? in the crowd? It's just dumb. I don't get it. I don't understand it. It's not dumb. You're bringing the crowd into the show. It's in the middle of an Undertaker-Vader match, and we're talking to a babysitter. Yeah, I think that the placement was kind of the drizzling shit. Oh, it's brutal. Let's stop yeah. talking about the female no, they, they, Vader. Dude, those were, those, were, those were fucking horrible. Uh, like just downright goddamn embarrassing. Let's talk about George and Adam. We haven't touched on them yet. They were not involved on the show, and they actually make an announcement during the Triple H match uh, that they had been kicked out by security. Uh, but these two characters were used for over a month, uh, showing them sitting inside the empty Alamo Dome, promoting that they were waiting and they couldn't wait to be here, and they were the super fans, George and Adam. Uh, whose idea was this promotion and who produced these segments building to the show? Would this have been the WrestleMania crew or would you have been involved in them? And you often- Oh no, no, this was, this was a TV deal. I think it was, I think it was Vince's idea. I had forgotten that until I just read it then. George and Adam though, talk me through, did they have any other roles in the WWF office or were they just hired talent? It was George Germanakos and Adam Panucci, wasn't it? How the fuck? Do they I weren't in this? the show, were they? No, but they built the promotion for yeah, the I show. Think it was George Germanakos and, and Adam Panucci in the in the studio. So the so the W. Were you speaking English for a minute? Not everybody was in the fucking studio. Were these WWF employees who worked in the oh, studio? God damn it! I'm back. I, you know what? Now I'm. I, by the way, my heat meter. I'm at three quarters and an eighth. Okay. Yes, they worked at the WWE studio. It's like fucking pulling teeth. All right, the second match on the pay-per-view. Ahmed Johnson beats Farouk in eight minutes and 48 seconds. Do you want to say their, say their names in your racist Mexican impression? Ahmed Johnson beat Farouk. Okay, that happens when the entire nation of domination interferes for the DQ. And Johnson cleans house on most of them, including pressing Wolfie D and throwing him over the top rope onto the other members. Uh, and then afterwards chases down another member and gives him the Pearl River plunge through the French broadcast table. This is before the Spanish broadcast table started getting all the heat, I guess. Um, I want to talk about Farouk for a minute. Uh, he debuted in July of 96 with that silly gimmick we've talked about before on the sunny episode. Uh, but here just a few months later, uh, we have the NOD and I want to know, cause I don't know when we'll talk about them again. Whose idea was the Nation of Domination, and who the hell were all these guys? Like, I know Farouk and Crush and D'Lo and Clarence Mason, and I even know PG-13, but who were the other folks? Who was the lady? I don't know who these folks are, and they're never really explained very much. Yeah, I don't know who the lady and the other guys were. They were just hangers-on that we used, different people. They didn't have another role in the company like George and Adam? No, no, not at all. Um, but the, the nation of domination, um, that's a, that's a subject matter on a poll one time. I'm not going to give you everything, but originally I believe it was Ernie Ladd's idea. Really? Okay. Yeah. Ernie consulted with us. Ernie from time to time would come up with some good ideas. Was Ernie consulted about the use of uncle Tom in a wrestling angle? I don't recall that. So I don't know what you're talking about. Well, in this particular match, the deal is 
Farouk is challenging Ahmed Johnson, and uh, he's the one who injured Ahmed Johnson, of course, back when he's wearing the stupid helmet. And then Ahmed has surgery. Ahmed comes back, starts chasing him around with a two-by-four. Farouk's in the stands, says that what he wants in the world, he's going to take. And these Uncle Toms aren't going to keep him from getting there and starts referring to Ahmed Johnson as an Uncle Tom. And I'm just curious, were Ahmed and Farouk okay with this? How does something like that even get suggested in a wrestling angle? Probably from them. You know, Ron, Ron had a lot of input on that. Okay. So, yeah. But it's not like Vince. We're certainly does. not going to ask them to do something they're uncomfortable with. Well, if, they have, if, if they have input on it and and they want to do it, and that sounds like something that, that Ron or Tony might have might have wanted to do. I, I don't know what they'll say, but if Farouk or if Ron Simmons were to come out and say, no, it wasn't his idea to do Uncle Tom, who on creative? I mean, you got nothing. You just want to stay away well, from that I mean, your creative consisted of me and Vince and probably Cornette at that time. So, Oh, okay. Let's but, move but along. We, Let's move along. Well, no. I, <laughs> dude, we talked to talent. We got input from talent all the time. Uh, what did Ron? I sure, I sure as hell wouldn't have suggested. What did? I want to get away. I'm listening I to Ron get, Simmons suggested get, it to me. I, I said, you're comfortable with it, dude. Good, good. Go for it. Uh, what did Ron think of working with Ahmed? <laughs> I don't think that Ahmed was Ron's favorite opponent. Ron really wanted to help Ahmed and tried to help Ahmed. However, Ahmed could be difficult at times. He felt he knew better and was fairly stiff at times. And he wasn't stiff with Ron Simmons, I'll tell you that. Um, But he did have a reputation for hurting guys. Is that fair? He had a reputation for being stiff. I, I don't know. I don't know how many people he hurt, but I know he stiffed people, and guys didn't like working with him because he was stiff. Uh, what the hell was he wearing over his thighs, and why? Who the hell knows? I mean, did you not think that was the goofiest look ever? I mean, man, it- sometimes, yeah, he would just do shit that I, I don't know. I I just don't know. He he was a unique cat. What did Vince see in him? Money. But just why, look though? at him. He had a charisma about him, and he, the crowd, the, the audience took to him, and the audience would get behind him. So he had that it factor. He had he had an innate charisma, and some bitch was over for a while. Oh yeah, absolutely. He was so over. He won the uh, Kuwait National Championship. Yeah, exactly. Whose idea was that? And was it a rib? Oh my God. No, the, the Kuwait national championship was a tournament that we did over there with some sponsors that asked for there to be a title. Yeah. They, they sponsored a title and championships. Okay, great. I need to see like a Pepsi title. Okay. I think that'd be awesome. Um, you say hey, that, enough. Hey, the way they're coming out with titles nowadays, no championships, right. is probably not that far away. Which, by the way, I like the new uh, I, I, championship belt that they have. I, I think that's a good-looking belt. All right, so let's talk about Ahmed Johnson again for a minute because you mentioned that he had charisma, but and he could get the fans behind him. And they show a clip here where he's getting the fans to start chanting, you're going down, and it works. What was your favorite Ahmed Johnson promo? 
<laughs> I do not have a favorite Ahmed Johnson promo. Do you have an Ahmed Johnson impression? I do not. Before you get going, because uh, you're going to come up with one, because you're master of impressions, Jim Cornette famously said, good googly moogly. And that, that is the way Ahmed Johnson's promos will come off. Do you have one in particular that sticks out that you could throw in your Pritchard machine and give us an impression? I don't. Okay. This is my favorite episode ever. Now, match number three on the show, Vader pins Undertaker in three minutes and 19 seconds. The finish saw Paul Bearer come off the apron and clock the Undertaker with the urn. Uh, and then Vader threw the Undertaker into the ring and hit the Vader bomb for the pin. The Undertaker then choke slams a ref after the match. And right after the match, uh, he goes on to then yell at McMahon, he being Undertaker. So you start seeing kind of the seeds of the Attitude Era uh, building with little acknowledgments here or there of who Vince is. Uh, and this is interesting to me because Vader's in the third match on the card and he was supposed to be in the main event. Uh, before we get to the next match, there's a bulldog promo inserted here that just tickles me. Uh, they show him getting his stuff together from his car outside of the building with all the fans around and he yells to the fans who is going to win the Royal rumble and then cuts a promo as he's walking into the building. He goes on to explain that he's going to win the Royal rumble quote, because I'm bizarre. Cause I'm born bizarre. Wasn't even there. It was on. How great is that? I'm bizarre. <laughs> you guys are like, we got to play this. It's one of Davey's best promos. Uh, match number four. We're back to some luchadors. I'm going to go ahead and defer to uh resident racist, Bruce Pritchard to explain what happened. Hector Garza y Pedro Aguayo senior y Canek be. Jerry Estrada y Heavy Metal in Fuerza Guerrera. Who's the referee for the match? Pepe Casas. Pepe's a, Pepe's a big star, man. He was big time. Who were his children? Well, it's Heavy Metal, Felino, y Negro Casas. Uh, so there you go. The finish is a uh, double foot stop off the top rope. Finish saw Aguayo use double foot stop. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Double foot stop. He missed. All right. Let's talk about the main event, at least in my mind. Of course, it's not for the world title, but this is what you're really here for. It's the Royal Rumble match. And uh, Austin wins the Royal Rumble in 50 minutes and 29 seconds. On television, they had advertised it would be 60 seconds between entrance, but it turns out to be 90 seconds. Uh, and Meltzer kind of freestyles that they probably made the match longer to carry things for Shawn Michaels a little bit since he was limited by the flu and couldn't work as long of a match. Um, he says this wasn't one of the better rumbles nor one of the worst, but it very much was the Steve Austin show. Austin lasted uh, over 45 minutes, eliminated a bunch of folks, maybe a record. Uh, and then at around 50 minutes, he throws all, uh, Hart throws Austin over the top, but neither referee sees it. So Austin sneaks back in, which basically at that point ensures what the finish will be, of course, because Austin goes on to dump Vader and the Undertaker and Diesel together uh, and then follows up with dumping Hart uh, at 50 minutes and 29 seconds to win the match. 
this this is a direct quote from the observer the crowd at this point was really mad about all the screw jobs in the matches they came to see and they were booing and making obscene chants with loud boos coming whenever vince mcmahon's face came on the screen right after this match so we're going to talk a lot about the actual rumble match and what goes into putting it together and all of that Uh, but do you remember the decision to take this from 62nd to 92nd and is dave's theory correct that you're trying to kind of Stretch a little bit. Newsflash, Dave Meltzer, once again, was incorrect. Okay. You know, it's, it's another example of him just making shit up because he doesn't know. So figure it's it's like, like right now, well, so-and-so will be back with the WWE or so-and-so will be gone from the WWE and or from wherever. Well, yeah, eventually everybody's going to be gone from there. So eventually he'll be right. And everybody eventually goes back there, except for me. And so eventually he'll be right. Um, the decision to make it 90 seconds was when we were laying out the match and were trying to come up with things in between. And, and go back, the original decision to take it to 60 seconds was to have a faster moving match. Right, right. And and to get it, to get it done in 30, know, 30 minutes. 40 minutes. And as we got into it, we realized, wow, man, this is just too fast. And we're not going to have time to do spots. We're not going to have time to set shit up. And we split the difference. Instead of every two minutes, we went with 90 seconds. All right. So, let me so it, would be a faster, it would be a faster, but not as slow. long as two minutes. So let me – I love that explanation. It makes total sense. Let me ask this, though. Uh we're going to get to it in a minute, but Sean only works like 13 minutes. And at the time, Sean main event matches, they're like 30 minutes or more. Uh, is there, what matches inserted in the card? Is it one of the AAA matches that's inserted just to kind of fill time since Sean's not going to, uh, be able I to think, I think we just stretch stuff. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it wasn't. Okay. Um, talk to me about, uh, his commentary, his being Meltzer. Uh, that the crowd at this point was really mad because of all the screw jobs and then booing when Vince's sh- face is on the screen. Okay, let, let's let's talk about that. We just had a Royal Rumble match where a heel right. went over right. with a screw job finish yep. where he was eliminated, got back in where the referees didn't see him, and eliminated arguably one of those, the most popular guys in the company. What is a – if you're writing – if let, let's put, put a writer hat on for a second – or a producer's hat. What reaction would you want from the crowd right after that? Booze would you would want them to be cheering and going, yay, that was awesome. Or I'd like to go with some booze. You'd like to go with some booze. You'd like to have, see some pissed off people on camera. Wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't get it. His point is, is that we did our job well. We we booked a finish that got heat with the crowd and had an angry crowd when we shot him. When we go to Vince, who we had Brett go to, because again we were starting to blur that line. Yeah. With Vince. All right. So you have an upset crowd. Uh-huh. Right there, pissed off, who are booing the decision. With by the way, right behind the camera is the baby face that just got screwed. So Mission in my opinion, I, I, I want to say that shit, I think we did a pretty good job on that one. 
All right, I'm not arguing that at all. Let's uh, let's talk about the clock. Uh, it seems like there were uh, problems with the clock in the match. It's on screen some, it's not on screen other times. Vince actually says there's problems with the clock, but just like in the NFL, there'll be an official time and an unofficial time. Uh, do you remember the problems with the clock, and what problems does this cause in the back? Oh, no, it's just simply one of those situations. No, what do I say? It's one of those things where... It's one of those deals where... the One of those deals where the guys in the truck were doing other shit and forgot to put the clock up. Oh, wow. That's all. Okay. Yeah, cool. that's, it's as simple as that, and Vince taking an opportunity to bust balls. Says it on air. Says it on air. That's something I wanted to ask. How does Vince communicate with the gorilla position in the truck if he's on commentary just through little shit like that? Through little shit like that, and he had a button that he pushed that he could talk directly to. And when he would do either us, so let's run through that. The button he would press would mute his live mic. Correct. But then you guys could still hear him. So there's like oh, two. Oh yeah. So there's two separate <laughs> feeds. There's one feed that all the production can hear. Um, but then when he takes that finger off, then it's just his live feed that everybody hears. Yeah. Unfortunately, there were, there was a button where only like Kevin or I could hear him. Give me an example. That kind of sucked. What, let, let us pretend for a minute now that we're wearing headsets where we fans have headsets on and we're in the truck or we're a gorilla or whatever. Vince is doing commentary and something has happened that he does not like. What would that sound like? Well, it would. Oh. God damn it, Bruce. What the fuck are you guys doing back there? Kevin, Kevin, God damn it. Somebody talk to me. What a maneuver. Oh, my. And then from there, you know, yeah, something like that. One, two. Oh, he got it. No, he didn't. Oh, my God, he got it. No, he didn't. Notwithstanding. Uh, the most charismatic. The heartbreak kid, Sean Michael. Uh, Give me a break, King. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Let's talk briefly about booking the Rumble match itself. Uh, how did you guys decide who's in and who's out? Like, as far as who's going to be involved in the match and who's not? Because you've got to pick 30 guys. And I've always kind of been curious because there's obviously more than 30 guys on the roster. How do you decide who makes the cut to be in the match and who doesn't? Is there a hard and fast rule or who ultimately makes a list and Vince checks it twice and decides who's naughty and nice or what's the deal? It's a collaborative effort. You you look at what's going to be an entertaining match and who needs to be on the card sometime, who can be a fall guy. You look for a comedy spot Look for that, you know, that ha ha bushwhacker spot. You look for who's going to be the iron man. Who's the guy we can build. Where can we, highlight a rivalry within the match itself and who can, who can kind of break away from the pack. And as we move along, we, we have a general idea when we start, who's going to be in the rumble. And then we announce them as we would go along. But with the exception of a couple of years, usually uh, Pat Patterson and I, were the base that put put the matches together. Corny actually helped in this one and was a part of it. Uh, I want to say Jake helped in this one. And as it grew, we, we added Shane McMahon to the mix. We added Johnny Ace later on to the mix. But for the time that I was there, Pat and I were usually the constant, with the exception of one or two years where Pat was not a part of it. But I just loved, first of all, I loved working with Pat Patterson. 
uh, on anything. Uh, simply the most creative mind in the business and the best finish man ever in the business. Just talent beyond talent. And I learned so much from him. But doing something like this, we would laugh and we would put things together and it became a ritual of a couple of days locked in somewhere. Sometimes there was a year that we all uh, did it at Shane McMahon's apartment in Manhattan. That was fun. We, we've done them in Vince's dining room. We've done them at my house, at Pat's house. We've locked ourselves in a hotel and laid the match out. But yeah. it's a collaborative effort, and you just kind of look at you, – you take all of your issues, you take your personal issues, and you see who needs to be represented, how they're going to be represented, and, and put them together. So does it start with you guys just, you know, I'm just freestyling here. You guys just make a list of guys on a notebook sheet of paper and then try to kind of figure out who's got angles with who or who could be working with who. And then that kind of determines the order. And then once you've kind of got all your angles laid out, then you can narrow a list of maybe 40 or 50 down to 30. No, we usually, we start, we usually start with the issues. Okay. You start with your issues and your rivalries and decide whether or not you want that to be a part of the Royal Rumble match, whether they need to be featured in something else. Okay. And then and then you kind of fill in from there. Okay. And you take your 30. And, and normally we would start with 30, and we would add and subtract as we got closer to the event. But it was um, – I always used to like to play the fun game of throwing everyone's name in a hat and doing a random draw just to see how it would look. Right. And I would take the lambasting from Vincent Pat. What are you doing? That, that, that's a fucking stupid. Nobody cares. I don't want to do random. Add a better case. Fuck it. God damn, pal. Just start with who we want to start with. And yeah, I just thought it would be fun because, you know, people have parties. They, they draw names out yeah. and, and they, they have their Royal Rumble games and, watch parties and whatnot. But we would, we would just look and just work backwards. Who do we want to win? Right. Okay. From there, who do you want that last person the to last be in the ring if they be. get eliminated? Right. And then from there you go back, okay, where should that winner come in? Right. And then you take your, your issues and, and then you say, okay, who's going to be our Iron Man? And you throw them in at one, two, or three and figure out where they're going to get eliminated. And then issues and angles go from there, and you try and pick your spots and, and have fun with it. Um, ultimately, the final call on all that is Vince. Uh, when do you guys kind of present him with, uh, here's the roster, here's the order, here's the specific spots we want? Is that done day of, a week out, a month out, two weeks out? Oh God, no. That's <laughs> that's usually usually done usually the week out. Hey Vince, we try not to let Vince see that damn thing until Friday or Saturday before. Because he would just go back and forth on it and obsess about it. Yo, big time. Um, when do you guys go over? I'm just curious, like in when you're in the match. Because this is, correct me if I'm wrong here, this is kind of generally regarded with the boys and in the business, a big battle royal style match like this as a bit of a clusterfuck. 
No, I disagree. A battle royal is a clusterfuck, but the rumble yeah, yeah. is laid out in a way that we try not to make it a clusterfuck. We try to keep we try to keep things that make sense, and we want everybody in the ring to have a purpose and know what the hell they're doing the whole time they're in there, are the so guys, that it doesn't become a cluster battle royal. Are the guys still getting time keys from the referee, even though they're on the sure. outside? Okay. Oh yeah. Well, that and, been... and it's easier too because you know you got ninety seconds or two minutes in between. Yeah. So it's easier to keep your time. Well, they have been doing that as referees at that point, or would the ringside timekeeper have been doing it? Referees. Okay. Um. So the guy. So as far as elimination order, I know it matters for the last few, but do you kind of go over that with the guys beforehand too? I mean, is it sound something like, Hey Sultan, we want you in there for about three minutes and the bulldog needs to put you out. Do you get that specific with it? Down to the detail. Okay. Phineas comes in, you're going out by so-and-so. Oh, okay. Got it. And you're going out on this side of the ring and every single detail. Wow. That's awesome. That's way, way, way different than I expected you to say. Let's run through, uh, the actual guys in the match. Now, uh, entrant number one is crush. He's eliminated by Phineas Godwin after about six minutes. Uh, then entrant number two is Ahmed Johnson. He eliminates himself after three minutes to chase after Farouk. Uh, number three is the fake razor Ramon. And uh, I don't know when we'll talk about him again, who portrayed the fake razor Ramon. How'd you find him? We will talk about him again. And it was Rick Bogner. And I found him from Paul Heyman, who told me that this guy was sitting in the ECW locker room and did a spot-on Razor Ramon imitation. Okay. We'll come back to him, though, because you did say we'd talk about him again. He's ultimately eliminated by Ahmed Johnson after 17 seconds. So he's getting a hell of a push. Uh, Entrant number four is Phineas Godwin. He's eliminated by Stone Cold Steve Austin after 2 minutes and 52 seconds. Stone Cold is entrant number five. He goes on to win. How could he eliminate Phineas if this is confusing? Okay, go ahead. Bart Gunn and Jake Roberts were six and seven. Both were put out by Stone Cold Steve Austin. Bart Gunn lasts all of 26 seconds. Uh, He's getting buried here even before the Brawl for All. So I don't know that the Brawl for All necessarily killed him. No, not at all. Did somebody in the uh, office not like Bart Gunn? No, it's just, again, like I said, there were always those that we wanted to have that quick, you know, the guy's in and he's out. That that was, you know. And he picked the short straw. Yeah, it was just somebody to get in and get out. Uh, Jake, as, you, as you can see, as, as we go through this, we're, we're building Steve Austin here. Oh, sure. Uh, I mean, this is a coming out party for sure. Jake Roberts uh, might last a minute and 10 seconds before Austin gets him out. Uh, entrant number eight is the British Bulldog, and he's put out by Owen Hart, which is interesting because they had been tagging together. Uh, Bulldog lasts about eight minutes. Uh, Piroth is uh, entrant number nine, and um, he gets eliminated by, you want to say his name? You like to say it. Mil Mascaras. Uh, Piroth lasted 10 minutes and 32 seconds. Uh, entrant number 10 is the Sultan. And, uh, he is ultimately eliminated by the British bulldog after about three minutes and 23 seconds. Uh, entrant number 11 is Mil Mascaras. And, uh, he eliminates himself after seven minutes and 28 seconds. And why does he do that? Bruce? No, yeah. 
Uh, entrant number 12 is Hunter Hurst Helmsley. He's eliminated Hunter by... Hurst Helmsley. Oh. He's eliminated by Goldust after six minutes and 43 seconds. Entrant number 13 is Owen Hart. He's eliminated by Stone Cold Steve Austin after eight minutes and 29 seconds. Entrant number 14 is Goldust. He's eliminated by Owen Hart after five minutes and 33 seconds. Uh, entrant number 15 is Cibernetico. Cibernetico. Oh, I thought that was my cue. Who, who eliminates him in a minute and 25 seconds? Bill Mascaras y Peter Roll. You know, I should circle back for a minute. I don't know when we'll talk about the Sultan again. We will. We will? Oh, yeah. Okay. Definitely. We'll talk about Rikishi. We'll talk about Sultan. Yeah, roll tide. Uh, entrant number 16, Mark Mero. Uh, is eliminated by Stone Cold Steve Austin after three minutes and 53 seconds. Is the bloom off the rose here for Mark Mero? I would hope so. Well, I mean, he came in to a little bit of fanfare and a little bit of a push, and you guys were trying to do something cool with him in 96, and then it feels like by January 97, he's Stone Cold. Well, you know what happened, right? Sable got involved. No, the bell rang. Okay. Um, entrant number 17 is... Latin lover. And uh he is eliminated by Farouk after a minute and forty seven seconds. Uh Farouk is entrant number eighteen and he eliminates himself after forty one seconds because Ahmed Johnson is here and he's not messing around. Uh entrant number nineteen is Savio Vega. He's eliminated he's eliminated after twenty nine seconds. Uh, Savio Vega, we've talked about a few times before on the show. I'm sure we'll be back. Do you want to plug anything about Savio Vega? No, we will talk about Savio Vega. He was a huge star from Puerto Rico and worked many incarnations that a lot of people probably don't even realize. I can't wait to talk about one that I'm sure we'll get to, uh, in a little poke. Yeah, you knew exactly what I wanted. (laughs) All right, entrant number 20 was eliminated after 46 seconds. Uh, rather than say his name, let's go ahead and sing his hit, Bruce. Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Jesse James. Uh, entrant number 21 is... The real Double J. Bret Hart. And uh, he is eliminated after 21 minutes and 42 seconds. Vega, Jesse James, and Bret Hart are all thrown out, of course, by Stone Cold Steve Austin. Uh, Entrant number 22, the surprise, that wasn't really a surprise if you saw the print advertising, was Jerry Lawler. He was eliminated after four seconds by Bret Hart. Uh, Entrant number 23, Diesel. Uh, Now, this this isn't Kevin Nash. This is Isaac Ankum DDS. Am I right? Was Diesel. Okay. Well, Diesel makes it 17 minutes and 49 seconds and uh, almost to the very end right there. Um, right after him, of course, we've got the Funker himself, Terry Funk. He's entrant number 24. He lasts 15 minutes and 16 seconds before being eliminated by Mankind. It's cool to see them top again. Uh, number 25, Rocky Maivia. In his very first Royal Rumble after making his debut at Survivor Series, He's entrant number 25. He lasts 13 minutes and one second. And Mankind is the one to go ahead and eliminate him. Kind of fun little trivia note there. Since they went on to be the Rock and Sock Connection, that in his first Royal, in both of their first Royal Rumbles, Mankind eliminated the Rock. Uh, when did you guys decide that you guys were going to strap the Rocket? 
to Rocky. He came, he came in with a lot of fanfare. Ross is all over the Survivor Series saying blue chipper this, blue chipper that. Uh, he lasts 13 minutes here in his, I mean, he's only been in the business for a cup of coffee. Bart Gunn's in there 26 seconds. Uh, but the Ro- Rocky Malvia gets, you know, quite a long run here. Uh, do you remember kind of internally what Vince's opinion of him was in the very early days? Well, everybody had high hopes for him in the early days by taking his dad's name and his grandfather's name, uh, Rocky Johnson and Peter Maivia, making him Rocky Maivia. And I'll never forget Cornette. Well, goddamn, give him a real fucking name, Rocky Maivia. And it was when he came back from an injury and went into the nation of domination, and that's where he emerged as a heel and started with the rock stuff, which, by the way, the the whole rock speak, you know, the rock says, uh, talking about himself in third person, that was something that Jim Ross came up with, and that's something we'll talk about. I know we'll talk about that at some point. On a rock episode, for sure. We'll come back to that. Uh, Entrant number 26 is Mankind. He's eliminated by The Undertaker after 12 minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, (laughs) Entrant number 27 is Flash Funk. Dorian Terry's brother. Uh, actually, Jim Ross reminds us no relation to Terry. Oh, uh, and he's eliminated by Vader after six minutes and 12 seconds. I gotta know about flash funk. I don't know when we'll talk about him again, unless we talk about maybe survivor series, uh, 96, but I need to know about flash funk, the dancers, the character, how you recruited Scorpio, who liked him, who didn't like him. We all liked him. He was a friend of Vader's, and Vader highly recommended Actually, a lot of guys recommended him, and he came in. Vince pitched the idea just from from talking to him back and forth, and he talked about how he really liked to dance. He liked to sing. His wife was a part of the meeting with us, as a matter of fact, and came up you know, with Flash Funk, and... The dancers were two legitimate dancers that came out with him, and they traveled with us. That's it. We'll talk about him again, too. I got to hear more about Flash Funk. We got to circle back to that at some point. Flash Funk. Yeah. Entrant number 28 is Vader. He's eliminated by Stone Cold Steve Austin after 10 minutes and 6 seconds. Entrant number 29. I'm curious about the placement here. Seems out of place to me. Henry O. Godwin, uh, coming in at 29, he's eliminated after six minutes and 11 seconds by the undertaker. Why would Henry O. have been 29? Somebody had to be. Well, you just, I mean, you kind of laid this picture, painted this picture a minute ago. There's so much fucking thought put in all this. (laughs) Well, there is. And then at the end of the day, you take guys that don't have an issue with anybody and you slide them into empty slots. That's where they fall. Uh, number 30. Uh, the 30th entrant is the undertaker and he is eliminated by stone cold, Steve Austin after only six minutes and 46 seconds. Uh, the, certainly the coming out party for stone cold, Steve Austin. Uh, this is when a lot of people finally got a taste of his kind of stone cold character, uh, where he's finger wagging and doing pushups beside people and, uh, getting in their face and wagging that head around. And sitting on the top turnbuckle and pretending like he's checking the time, just being the cocky, arrogant, asshole, Stone Cold character we all grew to love. Um, When does Vince 
really get behind him. Uh, obviously, it was before this because they've already started to leak the promotional poster for the February pay-per-view. So there's already a lot of confidence in him. Was that cemented after Survivor Series and his match with Brett? Or what happened when they thought, not only can we give him a push, I'm curious about how later, because in March, he's a babyface. Two months from here, he's a babyface. He's got all these heel antics right here. Uh, but by March, he's a babyface. Carry me through that. Well, the decision was made right after the King of the Ring, and he just emerged. And after the promo and people showing up the next night at Raw with Austin 316 signs, it, it was he was made, and he never looked back. And I think that everybody saw that in him, and the outstanding performance that he had here just solidified that everybody got it, man. He, he's He's the guy. He's a star. He's going to be huge. So Steve was given an opportunity. He seized that opportunity and made the most out of it. But it was the hope and the idea really was to continue on with Steve as a heel a little bit longer. And then obviously with Sean getting hurt and relinquishing the title later on, kind of had to accelerate that turn. And people... The, the audience turned on Brett. And so we just said, okay, they're, they're really digging Steve, and they're starting to turn on Brett. They just need a nudge. And the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, match number six on the actual pay-per-view, Shawn Michaels captures the WWF title for a second time, uh, pinning Psycho Sid in 13 minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, the gimmick of Michaels and Jose Lothario coming out in their hometowns worked to perfection. Uh, as he was a total face here and Sid was the total heel, which is a complete different reaction than these guys got, uh, at Madison square garden, a couple of months prior for survivor series. This match has all the gimmicks in it, uh, multiple ref bumps, a power bomb on the mats around the ring. Um, people hitting each other with the television cameras. Jose's son, Pete is involved. Lots of stuff in this one, but a super kick gets the job done for Sean. And then a big celebration after the fact. Uh, any memories of that match you want to point out or talk about? I thought, you know, it, it served its purpose and, and I can hear Pat Patterson right now saying, oh, let's give them a lot of the Gaga and the, the, the and have some fun. So that was the idea behind it. Make it a, a good, happy go home show and get Sean over as a star and it's in his hometown, so we knew they were going to accept him as a babyface. It was going to be a great reaction and want that to translate worldwide. So I felt we accomplished that, and everybody played their part to perfection. Uh, the match, Sean is notorious for getting phenomenal ratings in the Observer for his matches. This one only gets two stars from Dave. I think some of this show, although it is quite the spectacle to see that many people, I feel like... Uh, it's worth reminding folks that even though it looks like the crowd is dead, you lose a lot of the sound because you've got such a tall roof here. And people often talk about that for outdoor shows, but I don't know that they talk about it enough with a dome, but in a regular building, you've got a much lower ceiling and that sound kind of reverberates and it gives you a bigger experience. And that probably translates a little better on television. But here, is it fair to say that a lot of that sound just gets lost going up? Yeah, in domes and, and outdoor stadiums, without a doubt. It's it's tough to work because by the time 
that the sound of the reaction gets to you, it's delayed. Right. And it's tough to work. And singers will, you know, that's why they wear the earphones and the the stuff in their ears so they can hear themselves and they, they don't have to hear the yeah. the crowd and they don't it's have hard. to hear the feedback. It's, it's really difficult. Uh, the next night, WCW sets the uh, WCW all-time attendance record drawing a sellout of just over 17,000 fans paying 189,000 bucks to the United center. Uh, this is of course, uh, the January 20th, Chicago edition of nitro that same night, they shatter an all time single event merchandise record with more than $107,000, uh, in business. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, the next night after the Royal rumble, uh, one night removed from the Royal rumble, the WWF is in Beaumont, Texas. And they draw 4,834 fans paying $58,935. But this was a critical success as far as the writing for Raw goes. Everybody seemed to love this show. It's the one where Brett comes out and says he's tired of being screwed and telling Vince that he's quitting before brawling with Austin and Undertaker. Uh, I'm only mentioning the dates and attendances and gates uh, before and after the show, just as a frame of reference for what a fucking monumental achievement the royal rumble is i'm not saying they only drew 4800 the next night to say look how terrible by the way that was capacity in beaumont Uh, i don't know that's the building size i mean it's a tiny building it's five thousand. but i mean isn't that amazing when you really think about it you're in a seventy-one thousand seat place on sunday the next night same group same company same bunch of guys 4800 is a sellout uh, Meltzer writes, uh, the buy rate for Royal Rumble has been the source of some controversy. The WWF is claiming a 0.8 buy rate, which they are saying is only a 20% drop from last year, although last year they claimed a 1.2. Uh, others have pegged it at 0.0 or 0.6, rather, which is far more sizable of a decline. Uh, every 0.1 is about $325,000 difference in pure profit for the company. So even a 20% decline represents a $650,000 drop in income as compared to the previous year. So Bruce, I want to talk about this for a minute because we've never touched on it on the show. Um, Before we get into all the buy rate stuff I want to go through, do you remember being disappointed in the buy rate? No, I I don't think that anybody, I don't know there was a high expectation for a high buy rate, frankly. We we switch in November to get to January, and there was just so much shuffling of the deck. You know, shit, we were confused. Well, so we were we were ha- we were happy that we got the the show pulled off. We we're happy that we did. You know, the sixty thousand people, and I don't think that there was a necessarily a high expectation for that particular event, pay per view wise. Let me freestyle this too. There is a difference for. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just making this up. But in my head, there's a difference for booking a live show for the live crowd versus booking a live show for pay-per-view. When you're talking about Jose Lothario and the hometown guy, and you're selling it as kind of Rocky Balboa-style story with his Mick in his corner, and you've got all these luchadors, and it's in San Antonio, it feels like there's such a big emphasis on getting tickets and promotion and advertising and cross promotion. And you're focusing so much on getting people to the building that maybe the cards you put together is super attractive to those who are local, 
but maybe doesn't have a big mass appeal nationwide. So it does cost you a little bit on the buy rate. Well, yeah, like I said, it cost us from the standpoint of having to change everything and, and everything was kind of a mishmash at that point. So that was one that you kind of had to, to bite the bullet, grin and bear it and get through it. But when you're saying you had to change everything, you're, you're, are you just talking about Vader or is there more that I'm missing? Well, again, Vader, the domino effect, you, you're changing everything at that point. Because, again, Sean's opponent, Vader's opponent, Sid's opponent, Brett's opponent, all that change. I don't think that changes that much. Uh, well, you, it does. I mean, it, well, let me just freestyle this. You have Sid wrestle the Undertaker and you have Vader wrestle Sean. Why don't they just fucking switch? Why are you making this into goddamn Chinese algebra? Because Undertaker, they, they all had other issues. But you don't they remember had other what issues going were. on. Now, you, regardless of what you did, you would have had okay. to change it up and tell completely brand new stories. It's okay. not that easy to just say, okay, we'll just have that guy work with that guy. You're telling stories, so you have to try and make them make as much sense as you can. You are so full to of get, shit. To That's get exactly to, what you did in March. You put fucking Undertaker against Sid in March at the headline Because we of didn't have Sean. Because we had to oh make a God. change. This we had to ridiculous. do the best we could with what we had. Okay. We still had Sean for San Antonio, so we still had the the idea behind getting Sean over Big Baby Face Night. We still had that in San Antonio. I'm just saying. So now all of a sudden we lose our champion, we lose our story. We got to get a whole brand new story, whole brand new baby face direction, everything. My grandfather would say you would argue the horns off a of billy goat. Well, because it's. Again, you're not taking into consideration how everything affects everything. You're not talking in any sort of rational sense here. If, if we're talking about the Undertaker wrestling Sid uh, at, at, at Royal Rumble doesn't make any sense, then why the fuck would you do it two months later for WrestleMania? It would have been super easy. I mean, it's so easy for me. I, I mean, I don't know how this is confusing. That Vader just switches with Sid. You did it on the main card. Why would you do it on the undercard? But you still have to tell a story. So now you're telling a story with Sean and Sid. You still have to get to that. And you were telling a story before that with Sean and Vader that just unfortunately had to be dropped. Then you're going on and you want to tell a story with Sean getting to Brett. So you want to tell the story with Brett and Austin, then to get to the story, to leapfrog that, to get to Sean and Brett at WrestleMania. In the middle of that, Sean vacates the championship. All right, well, okay. we're going we're gonna to huh. get to that. Let's talk about this. It's, I want to talk about Byron. Well, that's another time. I, I'm fascinated. That's, after, that's not Royal Rumble. I know it's not. I was just going to mention, fuck you for a minute. It's my show. <laughs> Let's talk about buy rates for a minute. We've never talked about that here before. Uh, when do you guys get a preliminary number? We've often heard as fans that there will be like a preliminary buy rate, and then there's the final number. How soon do you get the preliminary number, and when does the final number actually come down? Well, you would get a preliminary number, and the preliminary number would you the preliminary number would usually be something where they would have people in the office calling local cable companies and trying to get an estimate. How many buys do you think you got? Because back then you had to call and you had to order All right. a pay per view. It wasn't automated like it is now, and they would get an idea. But you're talking to an operator, yeah, in a local cable company, and that information was about as reliable as the wrestling observer so, because it's just somebody in some town telling you, well, yeah, well, it did real good. It did real good. I bet you we had, you know, five, 10 people call, oh, but, but in reality, maybe they had 200, maybe in reality they had one, 
I don't know. Let me but, ask you this though. Who's making that call? Someone inside the office? Yeah, you have people inside the office, inside marketing or pay-per-view department. So, so help me. How does the preliminary buy rate, if it's only the company calling to get that information, it's not like public record, like, you know, they post Nielsen ratings online now. How does Meltzer and the Torch and all those guys get that? Just a leak? Probably the same way. They oh, probably did a making... sampling of calling cable companies and asked them, hey, how did uh, Royal Rumble do? Okay. Uh, what were like, was there, do you remember there being like a go-to market you would call and you think this, this market here is kind of the pulse of the WWF and we can, they t- probably, yeah, they probably did. I don't know. Chicago, don't know Chicago comes to mind maybe. Yeah, maybe, but you also want, you also want to, obviously you want to hit your top markets to get an idea where you are, but, but then you, you, want, to sam- you want to sample some of the shitters too. Yeah. Okay. Um, when do you actually get paid? from the pay-per-view companies. So let's say we have a Royal Rumble in January. When does the money come? God, usually 60 to 90 days. All right, so if we're in January, we're not going to get the WWF wouldn't get the check until like the end of March, maybe, or the end of April. End of March, end of April. And so once that check comes in, that's when you pay the boys, not before, right? Correct. Yeah, and those, and it's not like a check. You're getting checks, multiple, yeah, you're getting one checks from multiple choice, checks from multiple from... systems, and then they and they trickle in, you know, for a long time. Some of them you get quick, some of them takes it can take, you know, four or five months. Now let's run through why that because a lot of people will say, Well, why does it take so long? Well, because they bill the customer and then the customer pays the bill, and then you have probably a refund process and some credit cards that don't go through and some people who pay their bill late and blah blah blah. And if they're paid by credit card, then they have to get paid by the credit card company, and they reconcile all of that. Is that the explanation as to why it takes 60 and 90 days? And it was an antiquated system. Sure. Every, each, each individual local cable company, they some of them would collect their own data, and then they would have to pay the bigger cable company, and then that cable company would have to pay Encore or whatever the hell it was. Yeah. It was just an antiquated system. It wasn't like now you, you, know, you buy it on demand, you hit a button, they yeah. know. Um, what was the split with the pay-per-view providers? There's been always been lots of rumors and innuendo about what those numbers shook out to be. We've heard it. We've read it. We've never actually talked to somebody who was there. Well, I never, I never actually saw a contract that, that I could tell you. Definitely. Just I, guess. Let me put it this way. They had a better split than, than most because they were the innovators and they were the first ones. So Vince had a better split. I don't know why you're playing coy here. 50, 50. I, well, I don't, I don't know. I, to, to say a specific number, I can't Can, say that because I don't know it. Well, you fucking had an idea. Was it roughly 50%? It was better than 50%. I would guess 60. Is that off? It may be. I would say it'd be closer to 60. Okay. So a little north of 50, but not into the seventies and eighties, somewhere hovering in that. 55, 60 something range. Probably. Okay. Uh, how is a buy rate determined? By how many people purchase it? I get that, but you know, all this, <laughs> I don't know. I, dude, it, and, and that changed and that would change over, over time where it's okay. A million back in 1987 would have been this enormous buy rate. And now it would be nothing. 
so it's it, that's changed. I, I couldn't tell you that. That's like trying to explain the Nielsen ratings. Who sets the prices for the shows? Is that completely up to the WWF, or is there some input from like Request TV and Viewers Choice and all that? Can Vince just that's say, up to the promoter? So if Vince says, "Okay, it's in your house," I'm going to charge nineteen ninety five for this, but for the Royal Rumble, since it's three hours, I'm going to charge twenty nine ninety five. There's no pushback on that at all from the pay per view providers. No, because they get more money the more it costs. Correct. So hypothetically, when he says, Hey, we're going to do 1995 for the, in your house pay-per-views. Do you remember there being a conversation about, Hey, maybe you should charge more since you've conditioned the market to be 2495. No, because it was only a two hour show. Wasn't a three hour show. I get show. that. But I just wondered from a pay-per-view standpoint, if they're thinking, well, shit, we're losing money on that. No, because it was, it was taking up less time. They still had that. They, now they have another hour they can sell to put stuff Something in there. Else. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the WWF would go on and run another dome show later the exact same month on January 31st, this time across the border at the sky dome in Toronto. Uh, they sold 19,440 tickets for a gate of $292,000. And this is the largest North American crowd for a non pay-per-view since 1986 for Orndorff and Hogan. Uh, and it was reported that due to the February sweeps, the USA network had requested that the WWF air the entire Royal rumble on February 3rd, where instead of super bowl Sunday, they would call it Royal rumble Monday. And they wanted this because the 88 Royal rumble drew an 8.2 rating. Of course, that's when it was live. And before it was a pay-per-view, uh, anyway, supposedly request TV and viewers choice protest the idea of showing the Royal rumble and get this shut down. Bruce, what really happened with that? Do you remember? That is what happened. Back in those days, you couldn't, there was a clause in the contract, and I want to say it was 60 days. I think it was 60 days. might have been 30 days that we were not allowed to show any footage from the pay-per-view on broadcast television. Well, there's probably a limit about the time because you guys do show clips but it's like, you know, 30 seconds. Back in the day, we didn't. No, we never did. Well, on we this one, stills. you did. You showed 30 seconds. Yeah, we normally we would show stills. Yeah, I remember that. Lots of stills. And we never showed the finish. Finish, yeah. I remember that. Never showed the finish. Now, but that the, the finish thing is not necessarily a request from them. That's just old school wrestling promoter, right? No, that was a request from... that was It was a combination of both. And, and that one I know very well because... I made that fuck up one time and showed the finish. Well, tell us. It's WrestleMania. Which one? Savage and Hogan. And you showed it on regular television and got heat for it. Very next weekend. Wow. Yeah. What's that call sound like? <laughs> that was in person. <clears throat> yeah, that was bad. God damn, Bruce. I got a question for you, pal. Now here's here's the best part. He didn't even see it. Somebody told him. Somebody told well, uh, viewers' choice or somebody West, some, somebody had called Jim Troy, and they were in an uproar because they said you guys showed the finish of the main event on your TV show, and people are calling you know wanting their money back because it was on free TV a week later. And and that was during a time when with boxing where they would have pay-per-views and then Showtime or HBO would come out 30 well, days later and have the special on HBO or Showtime. They do it a week later now. Now they exactly. Now they do it a week later. And 
our argument was, well, people are going to pay for it live. But I, I had been up. Uh, there's no excuses. I fucked up. Um, but I'd been up for, I think, five days straight. I sat there with a, with a notepad and wrote down exactly what Vince told me. And he said, make, you know, uh, the finish. And I wrote down the finish. And we showed the finish. Um, Superstars of Wrestling <laughs> the Saturday after. I'm sure we'll talk about uh, WrestleMania 5 in great detail at some point when it wins a poll. Let's finish this one up. On February 13th, Shawn Michaels relinquishes the belt on a live Thursday Raw Thursday, citing a knee injury and, of course, the famous Lost My Smile speech. Now, the following Monday on February 17th, after Bret Hart's WWF World Title loss to Psycho Sid, the hitman physically and verbally attacks Vince McMahon, and we are off and running. We are all set for WrestleMania 13, and that is this week's edition of What Happened When? The Royal Rumble 1997 happened. We covered all aspects of this today, uh, from the promotion, from the decision, to book a big dome, what that meant for business, how it affected business, the relationship with AAA, the backstory that got us there, what happened coming out of it, uh, the most covered, uh, examined Royal Rumble discussion maybe ever for 1997. See us next week on something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.